Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
All right, good evening all. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's still May 18th, 2015, Monday evening. It is about eight minutes, eight and a half minutes after 8 p.m. Pacific time. If that's when it is where you're at, we are, in fact, live. All right. So there you have it. You can call in, 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980 is the call-in number. You can also go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, and there you can participate in the show from the chat room. You'll see the chat link, click it, follow the instructions, and in there, in you go. You can also... Uh, directly contact me because if you call in you're going to be on the air and if you say anything in the chat room everybody in the chat room will see you but if you want to directly contact me and if you have Yahoo Instant Messengers then my screen name is ABRN Talk And you can use that, and that is directly to me. And, uh, you know, you can decide, do you want it uh, on the air or not? Okay, let's see. Oh, the good news just keeps getting gooder, doesn't it? Anyway, where did I leave off? Oh, let's see. Trying to catch up. Ah, yes, here we are. Yep, trying to keep this a little bit consistent here because, um, you know, a lot of people listen to the show in the uh, archives, which you can just listen to the daytime show and then the nighttime show. And, um, you know, I really look at them as a continuation of each other for the most part, not every single time, but I always seem to have more stuff than I can get through in an hour. So, I start something and then say, hey, you know, I'm going to try to get to this tonight. And, uh, anyway, what I was uh, going through was a story with the title, Is the United States Planning a Gulf of Tonkin Incident in in the South China Sea? Now, I basically got as far to you know, remind you all what the Gulf of Tonkin really was. It's what got the U.S. all the way involved in Vietnam, and we all know how well that turned out, don't we? And that was Vietnam, after all. Well, this time it's going to be China. So, gee, if you thought Vietnam turned out pretty good, boy, this is going to be a lot better. Because I'd say screwing around with China is going to be a little more involved than messing around with some, you know, I mean, okay, so Vietnam probably wasn't third world. But, uh, you know, come on. Really? 20 years, 58,000 dead, and we leave with our tail between our legs? What? Really? And, you know, uh, it's not because... And see, this is the thing. You've got to look at history here. And what I mean about history is the history of the agenda. 
Now, who took the blame in Vietnam? Was it the politicians? Every last one of them that was involved in Vietnam should have been hanged by the neck until dead. And all their families shipped off in boats to go live in Vietnam. That's what should have happened, every last one of them. But did they take the blame? Did they take the fall? No, they didn't. Who did? Did the generals get hanged by the neck till dead? Did the Pentagon get blown to the ground and every last living one of them dragged out and hanged like they should have been? No, they didn't. Who got blamed? The American soldier got blamed. The regular guy, the sergeant, the corporal, the private, you know, they got blamed. They're the ones that got blamed for our embarrassment, our defeat in Vietnam. And don't kid yourself, it was a defeat. Why did the military lose? Was it because they couldn't fight? No. It's because they weren't allowed to fight. All right? The politicians created a situation and a scenario that was not winnable given the rules of engagement that they had. They couldn't win. Why do you think everybody came home all screwed up? It wasn't because, oh my gosh, that's how it happens. You know, No, it's how it happens when you are really, really traumatized. Now look, a war is trauma. Okay, that, no doubt about it. But if you have some sort of support, if you know, hey, you know what, the people back home believe what we're doing is right, we're doing it for them, we have a support system. It makes it a lot easier for people. But if you just toss them to the wolves and say, you're a loser, baby killer, uh, whatever, uh, you know, uh, village burner, you know, that combined with what they did, and that combined with, once they get there, they figured out, hey, man, you know what? We're put in a scenario where we are deliberately not allowed to win. That's got to hurt, man, because that's a betrayal. And betrayal is the worst. It doesn't ever go away. All right? Oh, you, you can get a gunshot wound and heal from that. You know? You can get in a, in a fight with a bunch of people who don't like whoever you are. I don't care if you're white or black or Chinese or whatever. Say there's somebody else and they start calling you all nasty, mean names and beat you to a pulp. You can get over that. You can say, wow, those people don't like me. But I didn't know those people, and I don't really care. I'll be more careful next time, maybe. You can get over that. But what you don't ever get over is when somebody or some nation or some organization or something that you actually trusted... When they betray you, that never goes away. Oh, you can live through it. You can get around it. You can kind of go on with your life. You can do all kinds of things, or you cannot. Different people handle it different ways, but it doesn't ever go away. And that's what Vietnam did. Now, but wait a minute, why? Well, look at what's happened after that. The military's been purged. It has been basically uh, debased by allowing homosexuals to serve openly. It's been debased 
Not by not by letting. Now, and a lot of guys would argue with me about this, and it's fine that you have a different opinion. You know, you might be right. I don't think you are, but you might be right. But I don't think the military is debased by letting women serve in combat roles. I believe the military has been debased by lowering the standards to allow a woman to serve in combat roles. Now, hey, you know what? If you're ram chick and you can get out there and, uh, you know, bust it up with the boys, then that's fine. If you can run as fast, do as many push-ups, you're just as strong. You're not a liability on the battlefield. You're just as well-conditioned and you're just as capable as the next man, then great. If that's what you want to do, Rambat, have at it. But to lower the standards has debased the military. Look at the stuffed shirt politicians running around the Pentagon pretending to be generals and colonels and such. They're nothing but politicians. They're disgusting. They're sickening. I'm telling you, man, anybody from World War II would probably put a bullet in any one of their heads just by looking at them. They got traitor written all over them. And this has been going on for a long time, man. The military has been being dismantled slowly and surely and somewhat covertly. Look what Bill Clinton did to the military. He purged it. He replaced all the generals with politically correct people. Which you already were starting with a bunch that were yes-men that went along with the political BS of Vietnam. I mean, come on. These are generals. These are supposed military leaders who allowed the troops to take part in a war they knew couldn't be won, wouldn't be won was deliberately being sabotaged not to win. And that these young men were just sacrificing their lives for nothing. Now, why am I bringing that up? Because do you think we're ready for a war with China? Do you really? And no, not a war where China, you know, somehow or another... Uh, gets busy real fast and builds uh, builds a million boats and uh, puts their whole army on it, floats on over to the United States and attacks the shore of the U.S. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about China building islands in their own internet in their own territorial waters, and the U.S. going over there and saying, "Oh no, you don't." You're not allowed to do that. We say, and that's us, and we're telling you, and uh, we're here now, and uh, blah, blah, blah. Well, a lot of this is bluster, and lots of times, you know, nobody really cares. But this time, the Chinese have told the United States, hey, guess what? Pound sand. That's right. I, I, you know, I should really write a letter to the Chinese people over there, the leaders, and, and give them that phrase that they should use next time. Forget all this other stuff. Pound sand. (laughs) Okay, start saying that to Carrie. But you've heard the news stories about, oh my gosh, China is building islands. They're building islands. Well, guess what? 
U.S. Secretary of John Kerry, yes, the same guy who wants more rules and international oversight of the Internet because he represents the United States. Huh? Wait a minute. Did I mention got traitor written all over you? Oh, yeah, okay, so it doesn't just count for the generals at the Pentagon. Our Secretary of State's got traitor written all over him, too, but he has for a long time, too. Because the only reason he's a senator and he is where he is is because he played the game. Go look up John Kerry. You know, he was in Vietnam, he says. Anyway... U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry used his visit to Beijing last weekend to issue an ultimatum. Right away, that sounds good, right? An ultimatum. Well, there you go. That's how you do. Uh, that's how you conduct foreign affairs with other countries. You give them ultimatums. Gave an ultimatum to Chinese leaders to halt land reclamation on islets and shoals. Yeah, in their territorial waters. And we're giving them ultimatums to stop that because we don't like it for whatever reason. His Chinese counterpart, Wang Yai, bluntly refused insisting that China would safeguard its sovereignty and territorial integrity as firm as a rock. Hey, that's pretty close to pound sand, isn't it? Washington is not going to take no for an answer, though. In what is already an explosive situation, the question has to be asked. Is the United States preparing a Gulf of Tonkin incident as the pretext for direct military action against Chinese facilities and armed forces in the South China Sea? Such reckless brinksmanship would risk war between the two nuclear-armed powers. You know what? <laughs> We're the only nuclear-armed power you got to worry about when it comes to nuking somebody. The Chinese don't need to nuke anybody. Okay, like they got, what, 10 million people in their army? So what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna to roll around the South China Sea to what? To the Chinese sink one of our aircraft carriers or maybe two of them? Because they can. Matter of fact, by now, probably half the, half the nations on Earth can sink our aircraft carriers. You know what? You want to know why? Because in this age of technology, surface warships have become obsolete. That's why they were already becoming obsolete by the end of World War II. We are so along the lines of, it's just, it's, it's crazy what kind of destruction this government is engaged in. It's almost like they want to start a beef with the Chinese to cover the economic crash because if we get in a if we get in a uh if we get a uh, a war going with China. Okay? We get a war going with China. Well, hmm, trade probably is going to be uh what? Disrupted. 
Yeah, and there's going to be shortages of things. And, oh, what a nice cover for an economic collapse that's coming, folks. And there's nothing they can do about it. They can, you know, they've done an amazing job putting it off. They really have. But they're running out of cards. Or should I say, in this case, card tricks. Because... Well, they've got about, well, anywhere from 2 to $300 trillion floating around in derivatives. And uh, <laughs> there's no way they can fix it, okay? It's gone. They have run this fiat currency system to the end. There is no fix. There is no fix to this system. Now, is there a fix? Sure, there's lots of fixes. There's lots of different solutions, but none of them involve keeping the same old uh, fiat currency system we got going on. Running, hey, well, we'll just fix it. We'll tweak a couple of things, and it's business as usual. No, that ain't going to work. And no fix, no matter what they do, is not going to be. It's not going to be pleasant, no matter what it is. Okay. And in your in your lifetime, how many times now you can use all your fingers if you have to, but I don't think you will. In your lifetime, how many times can you count that the that the federal government has actually made the right decision and done the right thing to make things better for the most amount of people? Hmm? Can you can you think of okay, let's make it easy. One time in your life, can you think? Because I can't off the top of my head. In 64, Johnson, you know, Kennedy's murderer. Well, okay, so he didn't pull the trigger, but he was deeply involved, and he knew exactly what was going on. Needed a justification for decisions that had already been made to dramatically escalate U.S. military involvement in a civil war in Vietnam and to begin bombing targets in North Vietnam. Pentagon planners had concluded that Washington's widely reviled puppet regime in Saigon was incapable of defeating the North Vietnamese-backed National Liberation Front on its own. Let's not forget all the little puppet regimes the United States has running right now, folks. Puppet regimes do not fare well. Okay? Because all they are is well-funded, strong men who control people through the phony fiat currency system. And when that goes... <laughs> Preparations for massively expanding U.S. involvement were drawn up well in advance. In the summer of 64, the U.S. worked with South Vietnamese to stage a series of provocations. Probes by U.S.-supplied patrol boats to expose North Vietnamese radar systems. On August 2nd, the USS Maddox was monitoring one of those raids in the Gulf of Tonkin, part of the South China Sea, eight miles offshore. Eight miles offshore. That is four miles within North Vietnam, Vietnam's 12-mile territorial waters. That provoked an exchange of fire with small Viet, North Vietnamese boats. And why shouldn't it? 
you're encroaching four miles into somebody's 12-mile border. Two days later, the USS Maddox, accompanied by the destroyer C. Turner Joy, reported coming under fire. There was, in fact, no attack, though. They lied. The entire manufactured incident, surrounded by a barrage of media sensationalism and official lies, was exploited to paint North Vietnam, Vietnam as the aggressor. The belligerent response of the United States was presented as justified defensive actions to maintain international peace and security in the Southeast Asia. And, of course, the dimwits in Congress are just as stupid now as they ever were. The Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was passed by U.S. Congress August 7, 1964, with, guess what, only two votes against it. It provides, you know, this is what got Vietnam going. Do you feel, remember that part where I was talking about betrayed? Are you getting the full scope of the betrayal yet? No, I don't think you are. Because, you see, we're only at the Gulf of Tonkin here. And you're being betrayed here, but hey, hey, that was a long time ago. Hey, who cares? Oh, yeah, well, let's talk about NAFTA. Oh, let's talk about, you see, this Congress has been selling you out for a long time. Yeah, we can we can poster boy the president, whoever it is, you know, in there at the time. But you know what? It's this Congress. And if you look in the Senate, and if you look in the Congress, there are people that have been in there for decades. And that should never be. Now, U.S. Defense Secretary Ashton Carter has called on the Pentagon to draw up plans for U.S. warships and warplanes to enter the 12-mile limit and directly challenge Chinese sovereignty. Undoubtedly, behind the scenes, you know, this is what we know about. I mean, behind the scenes, I'm sure they've come up with a little more detailed plan than that. Now, are you, are you getting what they're saying here? They have decided, ordered the Pentagon to come up with plans to make incursions into Chinese airspace. Uh, you know what? Under, like, international law, that's an act of war right there. So if the Chinese shoot down some of those planes and sink a couple of carriers in their sea, you know, the South China Sea, are are they going to be considered the aggressors? Of course they will by CNN and, you know, Fox News with Bill O'Reilly, the chicken hawk. Boy, another round of meat grinding of your children. Uh, it's just, it's insanity, folks, and it is a betrayal of the American people. Forget their oaths, forget the Constitution. These are supposed to be people representing the best interests of the people in this country. And yeah, we've got rules and we've got laws and they ought to be following them. But beyond that, they ought to be doing what's best for the people of this country. And you know what? They work consistently, never-endingly, against the best interests of the people of this country. You 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 got to wonder why. 
Are they really just possessed? No, really. Are they really just possessed by evil? Is is that that it? Is it that simple? Are they are they blinded by greed and they've been so greedy for so long with free money printed out of thin air that evil has taken root up in them? I don't know. I don't know what the deal is. I just know what they're doing. And they've been doing it for a long time. So you can't just blame this Congress or blame this president. (laughs) This has been going on almost from day one. So, we got that going on with China. Meanwhile, meanwhile, now you got to understand, you know this Trans-Pacific Partnership? China's not involved with that. Did you know that? You would think it is because it's a Pacific Partnership and, well, China's on the other side of the Pacific. No, uh uh-uh, they're not. But they can be inserted at any time after it's signed without the approval of Congress. That sound like fun? <sighs> you know, and somebody did point out, and I knew this, and, and this has always been kind of a, mm, I wonder. Because, you know, the South China Sea, Vietnam was trying to put out oil rigs out there. And uh, the Chinese parked some. They're not using them right now, but they parked them there just to show, hey, we're getting that oil. We might not be getting it right now, but we're getting it. And these these little artificial islands they're building could very well be their solution to say, you know what, it's easier for us to build an island than it is to drag an oil rig out here, and it's less susceptible. Why don't we build these uh, these islands and drill oil here? Never know. I don't know for sure, but that's certainly a possibility. All right, we're going to take a break. We'll play Stump the Room. We'll be back in a bit. Every day, baby, when the sun go down, I get with my friends and I begin to clown. I don't care what the people are thinking. I ain't drunk. I'm just drinking. Oh, man, you know I ain't high. Take a little bit every now and then. Man, you ought to be checking yourself. Come home last night, all lush, baby getting the fuck, I say honey hush, I don't care what the people are thinking, I ain't drunk, I'm just drinking, but you're so high. I ain't drunk, I told y'all I ain't drunk man, why y'all do me like that, I just had it fun man, but you're so high. What? oh no I'm not, Talk about me like this.
thank you too. Now let's have a little drink, just me and you. I don't care what the people are thinking. I ain't drunk. Uh, I'm just drinking. Who me? I ain't high, man. You gotta mind your own business, fella. You you gotta watch yourself too. You understand what I'm saying? I wanna tip you, baby, before I go. I'll be back tomorrow night and drink some more. I don't care what the people are thinking. I ain't drunk. I'm just drinking. Oh no, you the one drunk. Look at your eyes, man. vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. the key to the highway Yes, I'm built out and bound to go I'm gonna leave, leave here running Because walking is most too slow I'm going down on the border Yeah, baby, you know why I'm better known Cause you haven't done nothing yet, little woman But drove a good man away from home Now when the moon peeps over the mountain Yeah, you know I'll be on my way I'm gonna walk, walk the soul highway Babe, until the break of day Time now, baby. Out of cloud, won't be back no more. Now, when the moon peeps over the mountain, yeah, you know I'll be on my way. I'm gonna walk, walk the soul highway, babe, until the break of day. So long. Goodbye Yes, I had to say goodbye Cause I'm gonna walk, walk so highway Babe, until the day I die Alright, we're back. This is the Frank Report. And I'm your host, Francis Stephan. It's uh, May 18th, 2015. It's Monday evening. It's about 8.44 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If all that's true where you're at, we're live. You can call in and join in on the merriment. 800-932-1980. Yep, that's where the fun begins. 800-932-1980. 
Uh, you can go to the chat room, too. There's some people in there chatting away, and uh, you can be one of them. You can chat with them. Um, or you can ask questions, make comments. I'm in, I'm in and out of there. Um, you know. And you can contact me privately where nobody else sees it. Uh, AVRN Talk is the uh, screen name on Yahoo Messenger. So if there's something you want to tell me, but you don't want anybody to know you told me, because if you go on the air, they're going to hear you. If you go in the chat room, they're going to see you. But if you uh, do the Yahoo Instant Messenger, you can tell me stuff, and I can put it on the air without actually saying, okay, uh, you know, whoever told me this. And that might sound ridiculous to some of you out there, but it isn't, because, you know, look, man, people are getting fired from their jobs for posting things on Fed, on Fedbook. Yeah. Yeah, you post something on there and your boss sees it, he don't like it, you're fired, man. Yeah, so you got to be careful. I understand that. So we can do that. Anyway, that's for, you know, if something's going on, you know, I don't want to, you know, I don't care if you had a bad day at work or whatever. But thing is, if something's happening that could affect other people and you don't want to get fired, that's a good way to do it. All right, let's see. Uh, let's see. Uh, da, da, da. Oh, yeah, the songs. Uh, the first one there, I Drunk, was by Albert Collins, great guitar player. And then a uh, great blues guitar player. And uh, the second one was Key to the Highway, which has been covered, you know, by, well, Eric Clapton, uh, Led Zeppelin, you know, a lot of different... Derek and the Dominoes, a lot of different bands have covered that, Key to the Highway. This is by Big Bill Bronzy. Okay. So, there you go. Me Too, Room Zero. So... Let's uh, get on to some stuff. Uh, let's see here. I'm trying to figure which which story because I'm I'm pretty much done with the uh, oh we're gonna have a uh, war with China. You know, and a lot of folks that they, you know, they hear me say that and they go, "Aha, uh-huh, yeah, I knew it. I knew they were going to attack us. So they were going to do it. Those darn Chinese." Well, it's not the darn Chinese. It's the darn DC maniacs. Okay, and the Chinese aren't attacking us. We're going to be attacking them. Just like everywhere, folks. Haven't you got the clue yet? Nobody has ever attacked the United States. Oh, yeah, sure. Let's say the the Japanese attacked the United States because they bombed Pearl Harbor. You know, Pearl Harbor was really a forward U.S. Navy base. That's it. You know, nobody really considered it, oh, oh, it's part of the United States or anything like that. We stole it in the first place. The Hawaiians don't consider it a part of the United States. The Pacific Fleet before that was always stationed at San Diego. 
But we moved it to Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Why? Because, well, you want to have a forward post if you're going to be aggressive and run around the world attacking everybody, don't you? It's why we have Diego Garcia. It's a staging area is what they call it now. Yeah, where you just pile up everything you're going to need to kill everybody in strategic areas so you can get to the killing nice and quick. That's what the United States has done, and it's what it always does. Nobody attacks us. Nobody threatens us. You better start looking at this government in a different light, folks. For a long time, the rest of the world's just been trying to get along, and we keep running around destabilizing everything. You know why? Because there's a lot of war money going around. Well, war not only makes a lot of money for these psychopaths, it also gives them a lot of control because they can get you under a lot of fear going, well, you see all these wars, don't you? You see all these wars, don't you? Well, we had to get Iraq because, well, uh, Iraq bombed the nine, well, the, the buildings in New York. Uh, yeah, sure they did. They didn't do that. There was never any proof of that. There was never any proof Saddam Hussein, which was a CIA asset, was ever working with bin Laden. None. Oh, there was weapons of mass destruction, which there were none. Oh, well, next thing you know, Iraq will be attacking the United States. we got to get them first. And there's a bunch of dimwits in this country that go along with that kind of nonsense. And they always have. I mean, we were conned into World War II, folks, for crying out loud. Anyway, so, here we have, you've heard of Bill Nye, the so-called science guy? Well, he dresses like a scientist, and he plays one on TV, but he isn't really one. Now, he is, well, he has a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Okay, so, you know, hey, that's something. That ought to get you a decent job. But Bill Nye tends to speak way out of his uh, league. And uh, Bill Nye is a perfect example of what the climate change, global warming bunch of warmongers do. They take people who have the perception of being scientists and get them out there. Like this. Bill Nye is paid $35,000 to tell students to dismiss global warming skeptics. Yeah. So, well, gee, he had a TV show. I guess we should believe him. And you know, you think, well, the kids won't buy that. Well, so, sad to say, these kids are brain dead. Bill Nye, the science guy, was paid a handsome speaking fee to tell Rutgers University students to dismiss those who would question the consensus on man-made global warming. Well, for one thing, there is no consensus of real scientists. For two, uh, anyway, I won't go into Rutgers, but anyway, Nye, who gave the commencement speech at Rutgers over the weekend, told graduates to, quote, challenge those who dismiss climate change. 
Niles reportedly said the scientific consensus on climate change is as strong as the consensus that smoking causes cancer. Well, that's a catchy little phrase, but it's a lie. And is Bill Nye included in this consensus? Because he has absolutely no background in climatology. Climate change is the real deal, Nye told students in his speech. So, hey, deniers, cut it out. Let's get to work. Wow, a nice little pep talk for all the little dimwits who are now, you know, 50, 70, 80, 90,000 dollars in debt going to Rutgers. And Rutgers, this is where your tuition, I guess, is going. Rutgers paid Nye $35,000 to speak at this year's graduation at its new Brunswick campus. Oh, guess what? Nye was also given an honorary Doctor of Science degree during the ceremony. <laughs> so now he can call himself Dr. Nye, but he's still a fraud, okay? I mean, he's really taking this thing about being a TV science guy a little too far, don't you think? Remember, mechanical engineer, a bachelor's degree, not a master's, not a doctorate, a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering. Okay, look, I'm not going to diss mechanical engineering, but it ain't got anything to do with the climate. Or any of the earth sciences, for crying out loud. But the students raved about it. Okay, you want to hear some stupid kids? It's a heavy topic, but it's something that was necessary to address. Jesse Bagley, who earned a degree in science and biomedical engineering, told uh, NJ.com, he's right. We all have an opportunity to make a choice as far as that goes, and it was something that we needed to hear. Yeah, here's here's another expert, okay? Yeah. He has a journalism and media degree. I learned from Bill Nye probably more than any other science class because he is so awesome. Wow. Wow. Yeah, man, that's just what I want. You know, I, these are the people going to be running the world, man. Now, here's a little, here's a little something. Nye has been a major critic of those who are skeptical of man-made global warming. For Earth Day, Nye flew with President Barack Obama on Air Force One to Florida's Everglades to highlight how global warming was damaging such environments. Ironically. Nye's Air Force One trip emitted the same amount of carbon dioxide as 17 passenger vehicles would in an entire year and wasted more than 9,000 gallons of gasoline. Now, you know, I looked into Bill Nye, the science guy, because I've never paid attention to him on TV, and uh, he doesn't seem like that awesome to me. He was in an episode of uh, Stargate Atlantis, which was interesting. Where That's where he belongs, folks. You know, because he's an actor. Anyway, yeah, he's a science educator, comedian, television host, actor, writer, scientist. He's not a scientist. 
Oh, and a former mechanical engineer. Well, mechanical engineering is the only thing he's got a degree in. So if he's a former mechanical engineer, he is a nothing. He's not a scientist. Uh, oh, wait. Unless you, I guess maybe you could count that uh, honorary doctorate. That means they give you something without having to do the work. Kind of like Obama's Nobel Prize. Yeah, that. Well, anyway, I, I was looking into his early life, and this is uh, very interesting, okay? I'm going to try to do this quick. Uh, his parents, blah, blah, blah. That's great. So he went to Lafayette Elementary School, and and he grew up in Washington, D.C., okay? Uh, he went to Lafayette Elementary School and Alice Deal Jr., Jr. High School in the city. He was accepted to the private Sidwell Friends School on a partial scholarship and graduated in 1973. Well, you see here, uh, his mom was a code breaker during World War II, and his dad was a World War II veteran, and he uh, was in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. But yet, he got into the Sidwell Friends School on a partial scholarship. Now, those of you out there may go, yeah, blah, 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 what's that? Oh, well, you see, the Sidwell School, do do you know where President Barack Obama's little darlings are going to school? I'll give you one guess. That's right, Sidwell Friends High School. And do you know where Clinton's? Little darling Chelsea went. Yeah, same place. And there's a bigger, longer list also. How did Bill Nye get there? And gee, what a surprise that he's pushing the regime's bunch of BS. This guy has been tapped early on to be... Oh, what would you call him? Well, in the CIA, they call you an asset. I guess you could call him that. Folks, <laughs> you know, yeah, I know. I'm probably just paranoid. That's it. Yeah. Too bad, though, because, see, these kids that actually watch him and hear him, they think he taught them more than he they ever learned in any science class. From the TV fake guy, okay? Now he's so awesome that they believe him when he's speaking completely out of his wheelhouse. And it just happens to be the same agenda that the government's pushing. What a surprise. All right, I got to go. I'll be back in a few. Everybody stay right where you're at. And uh, if you can't make it, thanks for listening. If you can, we'll see you in a few.
This radio network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Studies have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $140. $49.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System.
Welcome to the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's about nine and a half minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. It is May 18th, 2015. It's Monday evening. And let's see. Uh, you can call in 800-932-1980. 800-932-1980. You can go to the chat room, which is located at the American Voice dot com or AmericanVoiceRadio.com, and you'll see the chat link and it uh, you know click it it's easy oh and plus you can um, also if you have Yahoo Instant Messenger and you want a little more secure private <laughs> as private as it gets on the internet uh, communication with me through Yahoo you can do that the uh, screen name is AVRN Talk. That's the screen name you look for. So, uh, you know, at least, hey, you know, you won't be getting fired by your boss for some bad post on Fedbook or something like that, right? All right, it is Monday night. This is the 9 o'clock hour, and that means uh, we've got Dean Lauren as our co-host coming to us from the future because, of course, he's over on the East Coast, New York City to be exact. And over there, it is already, uh, let's see, 12-11. 1211, that makes it tomorrow, so Dean is actually coming to us from the future. So welcome, Dean. Well, thank you, Frank, and tonight is another exciting show on American Voice Radio. Uh, We have an incredible guest, Arthur Z. Schwartz, a man who actually needs no introduction about uh, the freeing of elderly women from incarceration, from nursing homes, And before I give it to Arthur D. Swartz, I just want to let everybody know that next week we'll be covering the new Bush-Clinton scandal of giving foreign criminals on the lam phony citizenships in exchange for cash through the State Department and how the Taiwan organized crime syndicates are running the Taiwan stock market from tailor shops across the street in Taiwan. So without any further ado, I'm going to let you begin the talk with Arthur Z. Schwartz, Frank, because, you know, we've said it all many times before, and Arthur Z. Schwartz is going to say it tonight. So take it away, Frank and Arthur. Well, welcome to the show, Arthur. I I guess I'll let you introduce yourself, and uh, you know, because you could probably do it better than any uh, me or Dean. So just uh, fill the listeners in who you are and uh, what are you about, and uh, what are you going to talk about tonight? Well, I am a lawyer in New York uh, who has. Okay, usually, listen, we usually don't allow you know bad words to be used on the air. But in th- in this case, we'll let lawyer go. Okay, I'm a I'm a uh, civil rights advocate. Um, I I've been doing all sorts of litigation around uh, the rights of people to free speech and free elections and democracy and against discrimination and you know low wages and etc. for for um, 36 years now. Gosh, uh, you you've been getting busier, haven't you? And I never seem to never seem to slow down. Um, things don't seem to get better; they seem to get busier. And um, and I 
I, uh, a few years ago, I launched a public interest law firm called Advocates for Justice, um, which you know, we sort of created it um, out of the ashes of a defunct um, uh, community organization called Acorn, um, and put it up on the web, and it's sort of like the field of, field of dreams, you know, build it and they shall come, and so we sort of posted it, and people started coming. Now, um, I, I got to ask you something about that, because you just said Acorn, and to a lot of people, that is another bad word. Now, uh, because people look at Acorn, uh, and honestly, I do too, because I don't know, uh, I wasn't concerned with anything else they were doing other than their voter registration drives that, you know, turned out to be very corrupt uh, in many places. That's not to say every single place, but, you know, a lot of places it was. So they were also uh, legal advocates, or is that just something that you basically grew out of that? No, they they actually, I mean, besides, we could probably do a whole show on their voter registration stuff, but um, the... Acorn had was very multifaceted. They had people that worked on uh, housing rights, um, immigrants' rights, uh, 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 redlining, um, the rights of seniors, the rights of uh, of farm workers, the rights of you know uh, fast food workers. I mean, they they had a pretty broad. Um, spectrum. They, one of the great lawsuits. I sort of. I only. I came into. The, uh, I came to work for them after the. Well, after the voter registration drive, when they were trying to restructure, which never. We never quite successfully pulled it off, and um, they had actually done a case um, after Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, where uh, FEMA was about to cut off about fifty thousand people from, from getting benefits, most of whom were still living in trailers, and. Uh, um, and Acorn went to court and said, uh, these 40,000 of the 50,000 are members of our organization, which wasn't really true. And, um, but they were out there helping people, and, uh, uh, and they sued on behalf of their members hmm. to stop the cutoff, and they, they won. And they did a lot of stuff like that all over the country. I wonder if they, were, were they ever involved in those, because you know those trailers, those specific trailers that FEMA were having people live in were uh, toxic. You know they oh, were off. Yeah, and they had a whole, and then they had a whole fight over that. But they <laughs> yeah. also, uh, you know, they they, uh, they 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 did a lot of litigation over. Well, do you guys? Do you guys? Before we go on, do you guys have a website? Because I'm sure there's some people wondering. You know, I like to go and check this, this yep. out myself. It's, uh, uh, AdvocatesforJustice.net uh, is our website. Um, and uh, you'll find a lot of information about us there. And so I sort of, you know, I, I had been doing public interest law for whatever, 30 years by then, so I sort of decided I wanted to continue to do it. Um, and and one of the, one of the uh, but, but uh, elder issues was not actually something that came to me. I sort of came to it. Uh, I had a... Uh, uh, an elderly neighbor who I agreed partly because she she was suffering from dementia and I felt she was going to get kicked out of her apartment so I I uh, helped her get into an assisted living facility which is sort of an intermediate place between um, living in your own apartment and, and a nursing home 
and uh, she had her dementia was getting worse, and I knew she wasn't going to be able to manage it herself. So, I I uh, became her healthcare proxy and got her into this assisted living place. But unfortunately, she um, fell about three weeks after having moved in there. Uh, went to a hospital, had her legs set, and got shipped over to a nursing home. Um, and while she was at the, she was in the nursing home maybe three weeks, and she came down with a disease called C. diff, ah. which is basically a version of Ebola um, that runs rampant in American hospitals and nursing homes, and it, it has similar symptoms to Ebola. And um, and so she was put into isolation in her cast without her glasses, without um, a television, without a book, without anything, and sat there for about two months. Um, I had to deal with some personal issues. My my own wife was undergoing surgery, so I, I couldn't focus on her. And then when things calmed down there, I went and checked, and she was still in isolation. It was eight weeks later. And I started, I said, did you take the cast off? Is she in, you know, she didn't go to the nursing home to live there for life. She just went for rehab. And they said, oh, oh, yeah, we'll take the cast off. And then they took the cast off. And um, the result of her being in isolation for two months was that her dementia got worse. Hmm. And she became extremely uncooperative and wouldn't participate in the rehab and claimed, complained that it was too painful. And this was a former ballerina who was like, had incredible muscular strength. Now, when you, when you say she was isolated, I mean, are we talking like, like they do with prisoners? isolation like you don't you don't see people you don't you don't have any kind of input or anything like that and you just sit there until somebody comes and feeds you and then they go away again yes and no interaction with anyone but the nurse you know, who and, comes in well she didn't have dementia when she started i mean no she had dementia but it it rapidly got worse well even if you didn't isolation drives people crazy right. you know this is why so, they this is one of the reasons they do it so they so you know, so I, at that point, I was like, I got to get her out of here. I have to get her out of this place. Like, you know, I, I, I'm responsible. She can't do it herself. She wasn't supposed to be here more than three or four weeks, and here, here it is, like two and a half months later, and she's here, and she's getting worse. And so I started trying to get her assessed and get her into some other place. And her dementia was getting worse, and she was, um, she was. You know, she'd yell at people, she'd scream at people, she was difficult for them to, to deal with, and uh, and what I discovered later was that they were then put, when I wasn't coming by, they would pump her full of um, uh, Valium. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so occasionally I started not telling them in advance when I was going to show up because I wanted to see what was going on, and mm -hmm. I would always find her totally slumped over a chair um, and uh, or a wheelchair, and not, you know, not particularly responsive, no matter what I, you know, said to her. I would bring her food, I'd bring her yogurt, whatever, you know, she wanted. And um, she had a few lucid moments, and then one night I got a call saying that she had uh, aspirated in her sleep, probably because she was so drugged, and, and, the, and it had gone into her lung, and she had pneumonia, and she was rushed to a hospital, and... Um, um, and she was in critical condition. Uh, and so all of a sudden I had to, I was told I had to make decisions about life or death and, you know, pulling out her, her respirator and turning
turning the machines off and you know it was way beyond anything I had ever signed up for and uh, um, she actually pulled out of it and uh, for a while and I was able to get her into a, a really lovely hospice in New York uh, there's a, a really wonderful place called Cavalry that uh, that made her last uh, four weeks really you know marvelous for her but she didn't recover so while during one of the visits that I, I had, um, there was actually a New York Times reporter that was going to write a story, who, which who never did. I'm not sure why. Um, uh, woman in the next bed is making commentary about um, about you know what my my neighbor is saying, and so I finally turned to her one and I said, "Who are you?" And this incredibly vibrant. Uh, not um, demented person, you know, sits up and starts telling me and gets into her wheelchair and starts wheeling around and is like, you know, telling me about, her, you know, how, you know, she she's a singer and she, you know, used to sing in a cabaret and and some judge put her into the into the nursing home and um, I then found out that I knew her daughter who lived a few blocks away from me and I had heard the story but I sort of didn't believe it and then here I was confronted with somebody who really didn't belong in a nursing home and I said you know I didn't save the life of my my neighbor but I'm going to get you out of here and so I then began to look into um, how it is that she wound up there and found out that she got put there by a judge on a complaint of someone some unknown person who had a government agency go visit her apartment, and they decided that she was potentially a victim of abuse by her daughter, who was 62, and um, and that she needed a guardian. And then the uh, and the judge, this judge that the case went in front of, decided after the first hearing, where the woman wasn't present, that she belonged in a nursing home. And she ordered her placed in a nursing home. Now, instead of perhaps ordering the daughter out of the apartment, um, and later I learned that that the the, uh, the 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 landlord was the one that made the initial complaint, and they lived in this they live in this two bedroom, fifteenth floor apartment on one of the most beautiful corners in Greenwich Village, with with views in uh, uh, west, north, and east. And a terrace. It's it's a fifteen thousand dollar a month apartment, and they were paying seven hundred dollars a month for it. Um, and the landlord wanted to get them out. And the, if uh, if the woman's name is Ruth Burke, if Ruth was in the hospital, was in the nursing home for a year, she would lose her right to the apartment. And then the landlord brought an action to eject the daughter, saying that she was a nuisance to everyone else in the building. So well, well, um, I've got a question here, Arthur. Um, how exactly does I mean? How do I word this? How exactly is it legal for a judge to commit somebody to anywhere without even seeing them? Well, it's it, it totally illegal. Okay. Uh, this judge, whose name is Tanya Kennedy, who's some people think she's a rising star in the bench in, in in New York, but she totally violated. New York has a law, and most states have similar laws because we have something called due process rights uh, that 
you're entitled to a hearing before a judge can appoint a guardian who who controls your every once you have a guardian the guardian controls your money they control where you live they control your health care they control uh what you eat uh they control who you can see uh and the judge is supposed to in new york the, the, the law literally says that the judge has to have a hearing where the person is present and if the person can't be present the judge is supposed to go to where the person is now another thing never, with never did it another thing is when you use the word guardian a lot of people have uh, uh, a better idea of guardian than what it really is like somebody who's going to be looking out for you you know they think of well i'm my kid's guardian you know i i guard my kids i take care of them and but these are people these are professionals who are in like a pool who just get picked and it's it's they don't know the person necessarily they don't they just you're the guardian now you're in charge and they can do anything right and now in in this in cases like this where the people don't have money they don't they don't go to that pool that pool is usually people that are appointed to take care of wealthy people wealthy quote unquote incapacitated people and they oh, get paid oh my god uh, in in cases where there's no money, that private guardian pool uh, is is not really interested in in these cases. So they they get assigned. There are these nonprofit agencies that exist that will become the guardian. Now the problem is they're all they have so many people. Right. It's like the that, public public defender's office for. Old people. Oh, I wish it was as attentive as the public defender's office. It's like <laughs> wow, that's sad. The law I found doesn't require them to visit the person, for example, more than four times a year. Wow. Um, and so these agencies, uh, even though they're they're told they're supposed to keep an elderly person in the least restrictive environment, they they right away stick them in nursing homes. Because I've now had other cases since then where the same thing happened, where somebody had a small accident or somebody was difficult and they got them put in and the guardian said, you know, you belong in a nursing home. And they moved them out of their home, didn't have a home health care aid, didn't arrange for visitation from friends, didn't arrange for having somebody come and take someone for a walk and spend time and prepare meals and help go shopping or whatever. They just stick them in a nursing home because in the nursing home, they're someone's there to take care of them and the agency, the guardian, doesn't really have to think about it. Uh, and the only time they get involved is if they have a medical need and they need to authorize some kind of medical medical procedure. And this is a this is in in New York, and I have a feeling it goes on everywhere else. Um, it's part of the way we warehouse older people who don't have. The, and the, the key here is often it, the people who don't have families. Doesn't it? Families. Doesn't it also? Uh, uh, isn't there? opportunity at least for kickbacks to these uh, uh, ad litem uh, guardians to where, oh, come on now, get up, pack it up, we're putting you off to a nursing home. And, uh, you know, well, which nursing home gets that? You know, is it somebody who's going to say, well, hey, you know, you bring us this many a month and we'll kick you back this much every month. Is is, is Does that opportunity at least exist? I think there's all sorts of opportunities for financial shenanigans because one of the most basic uh, basic motivations in the beginning in at least in New York 
where there is still a fairly significant number of uh, apartments that are under rent regulation. Um, so, like for example, that apartment that the Burks live in, which on the market would go for fifteen to twenty thousand dollars these days, Greenwich Village has become a very expensive place to live. Um, they're paying seven hundred dollars a month. The landlord wants them out. <laughs> There's a lot of money to be made there, mm-hmm. and. So if a landlord can get a guardian appointed and get the person put in a nursing home, ta-da, they get the apartment back. Right. Um, now, I've got, I've got a question before we go to break, and then we've got to take a break. But uh, what if, now, I, I realize these pools are mainly interested in people who have money, means, whatever. And, it, of course, it's easier if they don't have any family. But what if they do have a family? What if they have somebody in their family who is willing to be the guardian? Do, do the courts recognize that, or do they just say, oh, no, 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 well, we'll go with a professional guardian, and uh, we'll do it our way? What are the? Why I'm asking is because there's people out there who have loved ones, and they're probably horrified right now hearing some of this stuff, going, oh, my gosh, this could, have, this could be my mother, this could be my, my dad, this could be my brother, who knows, you know? So if you are a family member, I mean, can you say, oh, no, I'm going to be the guardian, and will the courts, uh, do they have to accept you, or can they just say, no, we're going with the professional? Well, very often, if it gets to the situation where some public agency says you need a guardian, the the court isn't going to appoint a family member. The court is going to take an attitude that the family member isn't qualified to handle the affairs, it's ridiculous. It, I have a, I, I, I have a sense. I don't have any proof, and I'm, but I'm saying this as a lawyer that there's enormous amounts of money and corruption involved here. Um, uh, whether it's landlords trying to get rid of people, whether it's uh, um, people who are professional guardians making money by by becoming the guardian for some wealthy person. Um, very often the person can get taken away from their family. And once there's a guardian, you have no control. I literally had a judge, when I got involved for Mrs. Burke, I came to the court and I said, you know, I met with Mrs. Burke, she wants me to be her lawyer, she wants me to get her out of the, out of the nursing home. And the judge said, and, that, and, she wants, and she feels that you violated her rights. And the judge said, you can't represent her, I have to appoint you. I said, judge, I want to appeal what you did, I want to, I want to question oh, what God. you did. You, I'm not asking you to appoint me to do that. And she said, "That's not the law." Uh, and I began a series of like I went to federal court with a habeas corpus petition, like a prisoner, and I went to higher courts and demanded that she have a hearing. And I finally just made a nuisance of myself that uh, and to the nursing home that the nursing home said we don't want her anymore. <laughs> She's not worth it. Uh, and the judge said, you, you want to take care of her? You can be the guardian. So I became the guardian, and I got her out of the nursing home. But it's pretty rare, uh, well, unless we, I start some national project to, you know, that lots of people give money to. It's going to be Well, Arthur, we've got, to, we, we've got to take a break right here for a few minutes, but when we come back, uh, we'll get back at it. And uh, I'd really like to, if there are any solutions, you know, or or protections that people out there with family members, you know, like I said, there's, they're probably horrified hearing this, you know, go, oh my gosh, you know, and not only could it be them, it could be me, 
you know, hey, in a few years, you know, people are thinking, whoa, you know, this could be me. They could do this to me. And, um, you know, so maybe when we come back, if there are any kind of protections or solutions, we could talk about them a little bit. But we'll be back in a few. And I think this is actually Ruth Burke. So here we go. Summertime and the living is easy. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. Oh, your daddy's rich and your ma is good looking. So hush, little baby, don't you cry. One of these mornings you're gonna take up singing. Then you'll spread your wings and you'll take to the sky. But till that morning, there's a nothing can harm you with Daddy and Mammy standing by. have shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Countries have denied Internet access for their people during civil strife. The FCC seized in-use commercial shortwave frequencies right after the September 11th attacks. No one communication system can be depended on to be there when you need information. You need choices. You need a KU band free-to-air satellite system from AVR. The AVR system includes a receiver, an LNB, and a 75-centimeter dish. All you need to get on your own is the coaxial cable. The system is delivered to your door for $149. 
$149.99. That's right, delivered for $149.99. That's the shipping and the system, $149.99. Call 541-225-4659. That's 541-225-4659. Or visit AmericanVoiceRadio.com and click Satellite System. Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is May 18, 2015. It's Monday evening. It's 940 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast. If all that's true where you're at, we are, in fact, live. You can call in, participate in the show, 800-932-1980. You can go to the website, theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, and uh, you'll see the chat uh, link, click it, it's easy, you'll get in there, and you can participate, or just chat with the other stuff, or private communication, or <laughs> as private as the internet will allow, Yahoo Instant Messenger, 
AVRN Talk is the screen name. All right, well, let's see. The songs. The song there was, the first song was actually, we played it last week, I believe. And that is actually Ruth Burke, the woman that you have heard us talking about here. So, uh, I don't know. She sounds pretty pretty spry to me there, but uh, hey, that's just Definitely me. spry. She's ready to do a cabaret act. That's a 91-year-old 90, woman belting it out like that. That's uh, amazing, and she remembers all the lyrics for all the songs that she sang. She was a cabaret singer um, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s in, uh, in the village. Her husband owned a hotel that had a, had a lounge, and she was the cabaret singer, and uh, she had been an opera singer before that, and and she's uh, resumed her singing career because uh, one, an article got written about it in the, in the, one of the New York papers, and they they actually put sound on the on the article, and uh, she got to sing again on a TV station last Friday, and uh, and people are, I think that the the TV the TV uh, clip got something like twenty thousand hits in the first hour, uh, so. You know, she's got a new career under her belt, and, uh, <laughs> which, you know, this was someone who was locked up in a nursing home and uh, didn't belong there. And you see, you had asked that question before about what uh, what could people, you know, what do people have to do? I think oh, yeah. that I mean, if you've got critical. a mom or you got a mom or a dad or a brother or sister, or you're worried about yourself, you know, that, you know, you're sitting there going, hmm. If you're I, worried about you, I'll tell you something. Always make sure. Always make sure before you start, I guess we all go downhill unless we die instantaneously, which I guess is the other way to go. Um, if you start Before you start to decline, I mean, some, some of us are lucky. I have four kids and, and a loving wife, and I'm not, you know, I'm sure somebody will be around to go take care of me. But sometimes people aren't so lucky, uh, or their children go off to another part of the country, uh, or their spouse dies and they're, and they they didn't have kids or whatever whatever the whatever the story is, um, you've got to make sure that there are friends around who will look out for you. You've got to make sure that you have plans, uh, and uh, you've got to make sure that there are people who will um, who will stick up for you. Now, uh, you know, I, I as a lawyer, you're a lawyer, and I'll I'll ask you this as a lawyer. Now, I've heard I've heard. Bad things about living wills. Now I know they've been pushed pretty hard, but I've heard bad things about them, and I've actually seen quite a few stories where they they didn't they didn't basically fulfill what the people thought they would. So, what legally can somebody do? I mean, are there any legal protections people can take? Like you said before, you really. Well, let's say before you really start hitting the skids, because I've been going downhill for what thirty, forty years now. You know, it's a long, it's a long, long hill, man. You know, but you know what? Well, you what, could what have, are you some could, legitimate steps? I mean, uh, it may be a little extreme, but um, you could get somebody appointed as you. You may think that your spouse or your child uh, has some automatic right to take care of you if you. If uh, you decline, or if, say you have a stroke, or you know things happen to people, you have a you have an accident. Uh, um, I, I my the father-in-law you know flipped off a bike and had 80 and hit landed on his head and he went from you know from brilliant psychologist to to you know to somebody who was in a coma for five months and never really regained his full 
original, you know, right. um, wits. Um, and you, you should people should think about it. Cause well, the living and you know, you 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 just pointed something out, and we touched on it earlier. And I think there are a lot of people out there, and I, and I might be one of them, even though I know it's not that way. But I still have it in me that look, if one of my family members needs help, and I and I want to help them, you know, who is the court, you know, to stand and say, oh no. You know, no, no. You know, there's somebody better. You're not qualified. Well, I'm the family member, and I am qualified just by that is my attitude. And I believe a lot of people have that, and they may even believe the law is on their side. And you're basically saying, well, not necessarily. Not necessarily. If somebody petitions the court, like a landlord, um, or even a nursing home. I, there was an article in the Times recently about nursing homes petitioning to um, to become people's guardians so that they then got control of their money and made sure they were getting paid. Right, I saw uh, that. Um, so if there's someone that wants to go to court, then you could be, you know, if no one's going to go complain about you, you're fine. Every, your family members can take care of you. But if there are if there are folks in your life, including it could be a neighbor who maybe is, you know, you know, they hear that you're screaming at night and they think they call the, uh, you know, adult protective services and they come and they knock on the door and they do an assessment and they get involved and then all of a sudden, you know, there goes your, your, your rights. People could get, have somebody, not just a living will, it's just a decision about telling people how you want to live or die, right? Mm -hmm. You know, pull the plug or don't pull the plug. Um, that's what a living will is. This is really where you would have somebody appointed your guardian. Um, and it, you know, it does happen in, in, in there, there are instances, it's instances where people do have guardians appointed for them by, by the family. Um, and to make sure that nobody else can come in and, and you know, and, and make those important decisions. Um, and that, it's something that people should here? should think about. Let me ask just one question. Wouldn't a power of attorney satisfy that, a durable power of attorney, uh, rather than going to initiate a court proceeding which could trigger something you don't want, a power of attorney is just a document that gives people the rights to, to do your checking account, to do your rent, to do your, your, your various duties that you assign to them. Isn't that well, far more effective? Well, nor, it's far simpler. Um, and, it's, and in most cases, that's all you need. I mean, at least do that. At least have someone with a power of attorney. And don't have it be one from 30 years ago because nobody's going to recognize a 30-year-old power of attorney. You need, to, you need to keep having it reaffirmed um, every couple of years. Uh, but well, in the, this what, case, in what about Berkeley, a durable one? Yeah, a even durable if it's durable. Like all, the, all the banks these days want to see that uh, you, you re, reaffirmed it. It's not like a will. You, know, you could do a will 40 years ago and it's still good. Powers of attorney, some states now want them you know, they have like five years, a five-year shelf life, even if it's as durable on the top. Right. Um, but in this, in Ruth Burke's situation, her daughter did have a power of attorney, as did a man who lived in the building who she trusted and who took her out for walks and took her to eat and um, and a younger guy and, uh, you know, who took a took a shine to her, you know, just as a, almost like his grandma. 
and um, and the judge revoked the power of attorney when oh. she appointed the guardian. Huh. Uh, so it, it it's only once you get involved with judges, they can basically they have the rights in most states to to do to you as as they wish and. It's clearly, I mean, I've been getting calls now. You know, Mr. Schwartz, I'm stuck in a nursing home. I'm locked in a nursing home like I'm in jail. You know, I'm locked in a nursing home. Can you please help get me out? I just got somebody out last Monday uh, uh, out of a nursing home that uh, uh, she fell. She 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 had had a guardian appointed. She fell. The guardian uh, took her to, it was an agency. They, they She went to a hospital. They said they couldn't figure out what was wrong. But they wanted her to be in, you know, in a nursing home for a few days instead of in the hospital. So they sent her off, like, 40 miles from where she lived. And three months later, and only after she called me and I started raising a fuss with the judge again, did you know they they finally you know let her go because there was no there was no physical or mental reason why she needed to be in a nursing home. You know, how many of these really, and I know you don't know the, the you, well, you probably don't know the exact number, but just a shot in the dark from your experience, how many, like, percentage-wise, how many of these people are locked away without even getting that hearing, without ever having a judge see them? They just take some report from somebody that says, oh, well, this person needs to go to home, and off they go. Well, you know, I don't know the answer, but I do plan to explore it more because uh, because what I saw here, and nobody made a fuss at all. I yeah, mean, I've agency. got a bad, I've got a bad feeling. I got to tell you that, you know, I think it's probably going on a lot more than, uh, uh, well, certainly a lot more than it ought to be. I'll just yeah. chime in now that I'm the executor of an estate of a woman that while she was living, the judge slapped her with a guardian ad litem because she caught the executor for her husband's estate stealing the money. So that was Surrogate Roth. So I'll, I'll leave it with that. Continue on, Arthur. You're doing brilliant. Um, so I, I do want to – I do – I would like to try to explore more about this because um, – uh, you know, one of the, and, and I'm, I'm going to sort of raise a, a problem that I think we have in our society, in general. That, that's become apparent to me. I have a 93-year-old mother who, luckily, is like 100% there and uses a walker. But she actually comes to my office every day, and she's the receptionist, answers the phone, and does the bookkeeping. Uh, she's a retired doctor. Um, but, uh, but not so retired anymore, huh? Most of, you are most paying of, uh, her a comparable living wage, right? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but um, but you know, a lot of us, as people live longer and longer and longer, um, we don't really know what to do with old people. You know, we're as as their children. Um, we're not sure how to take care of them. We don't want to take care of them. We're too busy to take care of them. And I know that the nursing home becomes a uh, almost a convenience for a lot of families. It's like put them in there. And one of the sad things I noticed when I was coming to visit um, both my my neighbor and Ruth was how few visitors there were. Uh, there were, you know, there were scores and scores and scores of people, and there was rarely a visitor. Um, most of these people were in there, and they were like by themselves because. We sort of don't, you know, we, we do a lot to take care of kids. You know, we dote on them. We f do every little thing for them. But when people get old, 
um, we don't have the same, you know, the same feeling about them, and society doesn't have the same. Well, we stick them in a nursing home, and I'll tell you one thing, and I don't think it was atypical. In this nursing home, it was in the Upper East Side of Manhattan, very fancy neighborhood. There were three, three women to a room. There was a floor with about ten rooms, if not more. There were two aides on the whole floor. A lot of the people couldn't get out of bed or couldn't get out of bed without assistance. And there were two aides. And if they went to the bathroom, they went in their clothes and they sat in it. And and they ate whatever slop got put in front of them. You know, I, I had to yell to get a yogurt for for uh for my, my tenant, uh for my neighbor. And um uh you know, and I think and there was nobody there to, you know, it's like, it's almost like warehousing them. In a lot of ways, it's like a form of prison. Well, and, uh, and you know, this is kind of a medical uh, thing, because long ago, uh, I guess in the 80, uh, 84 or so, uh, I had an opportunity to spend some time up at a VA hospital in New Jersey, and this place was basically a warehouse. And their major drug was Thorazine, and they this was a very big place and they had people just shuffling down the hallway it it was it was like zombies and this place was full of and these were veterans of course but you know the thing is though they weren't getting any kind of care for any kind of you know conditions they had or anything they were just being put in a place drugged up to keep them from causing any trouble and that's it Feed them, put them to bed. Feed them, put them to bed. That warehousing, and and now it's being done in a you know because like you said, people are living longer. They're not necessarily living better. You know, Grandpa worked out in the field till he died of a heart attack out there. Now, you know, Grandpa is you know got a walker and he can't work out that you know anything, but he's still alive and you know cognizant and stuff. And uh, you know, what do you do? What do you do? As, especially when the family units in America are being fragmented, and I'm I'm being very nice when I'm saying fragmented because there's a lot worse that I think is going on with the family units in America. But you know what get, what what can be done? I mean, we, you know, a more think, humane society. System? Society needs our. We need to have much more of a focus as America ages. Uh, and I guess baby boomers are now getting up into their 70s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as America ages, we need to have more of a focus on 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 taking care of um, of people who, you know, aren't totally able to take care of themselves anymore. And it can't just be by warehousing them in in these nursing homes right. and sticking them away. And the nursing home business is very profitable. Yes. Unbelievably profitable. You know, and I've seen yeah. that here in uh, Medford, Oregon. I actually knew people that basically turned their house into a small nursing home. You know, they had five five bedrooms that they 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 rented out to, and they were a nursing home. And uh, you know, they had the hospital beds and the whole the the whole thing. They didn't have a nurse on hand, but I mean, and there these people did very well. And I think one of the problems is, you know, you mentioned kids. Everybody, you know, dawdles over kids and will do anything for a kid. 
it's because people like to be around kids. Kids got their whole life in front of them. They got energy. Yeah, they might be trouble, but still, they have energy. They got their whole life in front of them. And people don't like to be around dead, you know, death, okay? And everybody thinks, well, hey. We're smelly old people. You know, you're old and you're going to die soon. And golly, I don't want to be here when that happens, right, you know? Right. You know, how do I always get stuck being the one around when Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, yeah, the Grim Reaper Dean. Uh, anyway, so I don't know what the solution is to that. I I don't know if there you know if there is one. Uh, well, the solution is that that uh, I hate to you know be a tax and spend liberal. I don't know if that's popular on your network, but. Uh, um, we need to. Um, we need to. There, there needs to be some sort of national effort and gathering. Uh, you know, AARP is certainly something that goes in the right direction, but there needs to be some effort at figuring out what do we do with the, the fact that more and more people are living past 90, and more and more people are living past 100, and they can't care for themselves and. We don't want to stick them in nursing homes, and we want them to be able to to be at home and to, to be around their family and to be around friends and to be around flowers and plants. Well, and that's the, the thing. You know, I mean, I don't think it's a necessary, and tax and spend is not very popular on the network, but I don't think that's what is necessary because, you know, tax and spend is what got us into this problem. You know, uh, we'll, we'll create all these things. Uh, for families to basically shovel their people off to so they don't have to take responsibility. There has to be a fundamental shift in in the family awareness in this country that used to be there. I mean, Grandma and Grandpa used to move in with the kids and, and be taken care of. You know, and, and we need to have, you know, families have to start taking responsibility for their own. And, right. and maybe there could be some sort of uh, incentives for them, you know, some financial help or something. But, you know, I, I don't know what else. I, I certainly don't want the state in charge of it. They've done just a fine job so far. Right. So I, I, I'll, I'll just make my last comment. There is but money, the issue it takes that, money. It definitely takes money. Yeah, it does. Okay, but we could first focus on these judges that are preying on these elderly people and the services that aren't checking up on people. Mm-hmm. But, Arthur, we're out of time, so you need to close out in under a minute. And give Can your you- website. Okay, it's Advocates for Justice. It's www.advocatesforjustice.net. If you want to check out the work I do that's, that I uh, charge people for, it's uh, www.afjlaw.com. Um, uh, it's Arthur Z. Schwartz, the attorney. There's a, a famous composer and a food critic named, with my name. Uh, and, you know, I, I encourage people to, to be in touch. I encourage people who care about this issue, you know, to communicate through our website. Um, we have lots of interactive uh, features there. And I hope that uh, there will be some like-minded people who are listening to this show who uh you know, who get in touch and, and maybe are interested. Well, I, I it's hope an issue so, I too. want to pursue. And I think, I think everybody out there cares about their own people, you know, and, and if not, even if they don't, they care about themselves. And I don't think anybody wants to find themselves in a situation like some of these people have been, and uh, they do need to contact you, so hopefully they will. It's been great having you on, but we are completely out of time. So we've got to go. As always, thanks for listening. Got me begging for more. 
Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. This year, 350,000 Americans will die from cancer. One out of four of us will develop cancer in our lifetime. That's over 50 million people in the United States alone. The purpose of this presentation 
is to show that this great human tragedy can be stopped now entirely on the basis of existing scientific knowledge. We'll explore the theory that cancer, like scurvy or pellagra, is a deficiency disease, aggravated by the lack of an essential food compound in modern man's diet, and that its ultimate control is to be found simply in restoring this substance to our daily intake. We are not in the business of promoting vitamins, food supplements, or products of any kind. We are not prescribing any course of treatment. We endorse nothing except freedom of choice. We have nothing to sell but facts. What you are about to hear does not carry the approval of organized medicine. The Food and Drug Administration, the American Cancer Society, and the American Medical Association have labeled it fraud and quackery. The average physician, however, is less dogmatic. He's more apt to say, let's give it a try and then pass judgment. Consequently, an increasing number of doctors all over the world now are testing and proving in their own clinics that the vitamin concept of cancer is true. With billions of dollars spent each year on research, with other billions taken in from the cancer-related sale of drugs, and with vote-hungry politicians promising ever-increasing government programs, we find that today there are more people making a living from cancer than are dying from it. Hiring his maternity staff to wash their hands. Centuries ago, it wasn't unusual for entire naval expeditions to be wiped out by scurvy. Between 1600 and 1800, 
the casualty list of the British Navy alone was over one million sailors. Medical experts of the time were baffled as they searched in vain for some kind of a strange bacterium, virus, or toxin that supposedly lurked in the dark holes of ships. And yet, for hundreds of years, the cure was already known and written in the record. In the winter of 1535, when the French explorer Jacques Cartier found his ships frozen in the ice off the St. Lawrence River, scurvy began to take its deadly toll. Out of a crew of 110, 25 already had died, and most of the others were so ill they weren't expected to recover. And then a friendly Indian showed them the simple remedy. Tree bark and needles from the white pine, both rich in ascorbic acid or vitamin C, were stirred into a drink which produced immediate improvement and swift recovery. Upon returning to Europe, Cartier reported this incident to the medical authorities. But they were amused by such witch-doctor cures of ignorant savages, and they did nothing to follow it up. Yes, the cure for scurvy was known, but because of scientific arrogance, it took over 200 years and cost hundreds of thousands of lives before the medical experts began to accept and apply this knowledge. Finally, in 1747, John Lind, a young surgeon's mate in the British Navy, discovered that oranges and lemons produced relief from scurvy and recommended that the Royal Navy include citrus fruits in the stores of all its ships. And yet, it still took 48 more years before his recommendation was put into effect. The 20th century has proven to be no exception to this pattern. Only a generation ago, large portions of the American Southeast were decimated by the dread disease of pellagra, which was thought to be contagious and probably caused by an as yet undiscovered virus. As far back as 1914, Dr. Joseph Goldberger had proven that this condition was related to diet and later showed that it could be prevented simply by eating liver or yeast. But it wasn't until the 1940s, almost 30 years later, that the medical world fully accepted pellagra as a vitamin B deficiency. By 1952, Dr. Ernst T. Krebs, Jr., a biochemist in San Francisco, had advanced the theory that cancer, like scurvy or pellagra, is not caused by some kind of mysterious bacterium, virus, or toxin, but is merely a deficiency disease aggravated by the lack of an essential food compound in modern man's diet. He identified this compound as part of the nitrilicide family, which occurs abundantly in nature in over 1,200 edible plants and found virtually in every part of the world. It's particularly prevalent in the seeds of fruits, but also is contained in grasses, maize, sorghum, millet, cassava, linseed, bitter almonds, and many other foods that generally have been deleted from the menus of modern civilization. A chronic disease is one which usually doesn't pass away of its own accord. A metabolic disease is one which arises within the body and isn't transmittable to another person. Cancer, therefore, is defined as a chronic metabolic disease. Dr. Krebs has pointed out that in the entire history of medical science, there hasn't been one chronic metabolic disease that was ever cured and prevented by drugs or mechanical manipulation of the body. In every case, the ultimate solution was found only in factors relating to adequate nutrition. And he thinks that this is an important clue as to where to concentrate our scientific curiosity 
in the search for a better understanding of cancer. But there are other clues as well. Before looking at the more technical aspects of Dr. Krebs' theory, it's well that we examine some of them. For example, domesticated pets often seek out certain grasses to eat, even though they're adequately filled by other foods. This is particularly likely to happen if the animals are not well. It's interesting to note that the grasses selected by instinct are Johnson grass, Tunis grass, Sudan grass, and others that are especially rich in nitrilicides, or vitamin B17. Monkeys and other primates at the zoo, when given a fresh peach or apricot, will carefully pull away the sweet fleshy part, crack open the hard pit, and devour the small seed that remains. Instinct compels them to do this, even though they've never seen that kind of fruit before. These seeds are one of the most concentrated sources of nitrilicides to be found anywhere in nature. Wild bears are great consumers of nitrilicides in their natural diet. Not only do they seek out berries that are rich in this substance, but when they kill small grazing animals for their own food, instinctively they pass over the muscle portions and consume first the viscera and rumen, which are filled with nitrilicide grasses. In captivity, animals seldom are allowed to eat all the foods of their instinctive choice. In the San Diego Zoo, for example, the routine diet for bears, although adequate in volume and nutritious in many other respects, is almost totally devoid of nitrilicides. In one grotto alone, over a six-year period, five bears died of cancer. It was generally speculated by the experts that a virus had been the cause. Now, it's highly significant that one never finds cancer in the carcasses of wild animals killed in the hunt. These creatures contract the disease only when they are domesticated by man and forced to eat the foods that he provides and the scraps from his table. Dr. George M. Briggs, professor of nutrition at the University of California, has said, The typical American diet is a national disaster. If I fed it to pigs or cows without adding vitamins and other supplements, I could wipe out the livestock industry. A brief look at the American diet tells the story. Grocery shelves now are lined with high-carbohydrate foods that have been processed, refined, synthesized, artificially flavored, and loaded with chemical preservatives. Some manufacturers even boast of how little real food there is in their product. Millet once was the nation's staple grain. It is high in nitrilicide content, but now it's been replaced by wheat, which has practically none at all. Sorghum cane has been replaced by sugar cane with the same result. Even our cattle are fed increasingly on quick-growing, low-nitrilicide grasses, so there's less vitamin B17 residue in the meat we eat. In some places, livestock now are being fed a diet containing 15% paper to fatten them quicker for market. And so we see that in the past 50 years, the foods that once provided the American people with ample amounts of natural vitamin B17 gradually have been pushed aside or replaced altogether by foods almost devoid of this factor. Significantly, it's during the same time span that the cancer rate has moved steadily upward to the point where today one out of every four persons in the United States is destined to contract this disease. The ultimate scientific test of the vitamin theory of cancer would be to take a large number of people, numbering in the thousands, 
and over a period of many years expose them to a consistent diet of rich nitrilicide foods and then check the results. Fortunately, this already has been done. In the remote recesses of the Himalaya Mountains between West Pakistan, India, and China, there is a tiny kingdom called Hunza. These people are known world over for their amazing longevity and good health. It's not uncommon for Hunzikuts to live beyond a hundred years, and some even to a hundred and twenty or more. Visiting medical teams from the outside world report that there never has been a case of cancer in Hunza. Although presently accepted science is unable to explain why these people should be free of cancer, it's interesting to note that the average Hunza diet contains over 200 times more nitrilicide than the average American diet. In fact, in that land where there is no such thing as money, a man's wealth is measured by the number of apricot trees he owns, and the most prized of all foods is considered to be the apricot seed. It's also interesting to learn that when the Hunzikuts leave their secluded land and adopt the menus of other countries, they soon succumb to the same diseases and infirmities, including cancer, as the rest of mankind. The Eskimos are another people that have been observed by medical teams for many decades and found to be totally free of cancer. The traditional Eskimo diet is amazingly rich in nitrilicides that come from the residue in the meat of caribou and other grazing animals, and also from the salmon berry, which grows abundantly in the Arctic areas. When the Eskimo abandons his traditional way of life and begins to rely on westernized foods, he becomes even more cancer-prone than the average American. There are many other peoples in the world that could be cited with the same characteristics. The Abkhazians near the Black Sea, the Hopi and Navajo Indians of North America, certain native populations in South America and South Africa. From all races and all regions of the world, the one thing they have in common is that the degree to which these people are free from cancer is in direct proportion to the amount of nitrilicides or vitamin B17 found in their native diet. In answer to this, the skeptic may argue that these primitive groups aren't exposed to the same cancer-producing elements that modern man is, and perhaps that's why they're immune. Let them breathe the same smog-filled air, smoke the same cigarettes, swallow the same chemicals added to their food or drinking water, use the same soaps or deodorants, and then see how they fare. This, of course, is a valid point. But fortunately, even that question now has been resolved by experience. For over two decades, there has been a steadily growing group of people who have accepted the vitamin theory of cancer and who have altered their diets accordingly. They represent all walks of life, all ages, both sexes, and reside in almost every advanced nation in the world. It's estimated that there are many thousands in the United States alone. Now it's true that there's no way to determine their exact number or to conduct clinical examinations on each of them, but they do constitute a rather well-defined group that is both vocal and conspicuous. It's significant, therefore, that after starting and maintaining a diet rich in vitamin B17, none of these people has ever been known to contract cancer now let's repeat that statement. While their fellow citizens are suffering from cancer at the rate of one out of every four, not one of these thousands has ever been known to contract this dread disease. For many persons, the logic of all these facts put together is so great 
that it would be easy to close the case right here. But in view of the powerful opposition against this concept, let's not content ourselves only with the logic of the theory. Let's reinforce our convictions with the science of the theory also, that we may understand why it works the way our logic tells us that it must. In 1902, John Beard, a professor of embryology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, reported that there were no discernible differences between highly malignant cancer cells and certain pre-embryonic cells that were quite normal in the early stages of pregnancy. In technical terms, these normal cells are called trophoblasts. Extensive research had led Professor Beard to the conclusion that cancer and trophoblast are in fact one and the same. His theory, therefore, is known as the trophoblastic thesis of cancer. The trophoblast in pregnancy indeed does exhibit all the classical characteristics of cancer. It spreads and multiplies rapidly as it eats its way into the uterus wall, preparing a place where the embryo can attach itself for maternal protection and nourishment. The trophoblast is formed as a result of a chain reaction, starting with another cell, identified as the diploid totipotent. For our purposes, let's call this simply the total life cell, because it contains within it all the separate characteristics of the complete organism and has the total capacity to evolve into any organ or tissue, or for that matter, into the complete embryo itself. About 80% of these total life cells are located in the ovaries or testes, where they serve as a genetic reservoir for future offspring. The rest of them are distributed elsewhere in the body, for a purpose not yet fully understood, but which may involve the regenerative or healing process of damaged tissue. The hormone estrogen is well known for its ability to affect changes in living tissue. Although it's generally thought of as a female hormone, it's found in both sexes and performs many vital functions. Wherever the body is damaged, either by physical trauma, chemical action, or illness, estrogen always appears in great quantities, possibly serving as a stimulator or catalyst for body repair. It's now known that the total life cell is triggered into producing trophoblast when it comes into contact with estrogen. When this happens to those total life cells that have evolved from the fertilized egg, the result is a placenta and umbilical cord, a means of nourishing the embryo. But when it occurs non-sexually as part of the general healing process, the result is cancer. When cancer begins to form, the body reacts by attempting to seal it off and surrounding it with cells that are similar to those in the location where it occurs. A bump or lump is the usual result. Under microscopic examination, most of these tumors are found to resemble a mixture or hybrid of both trophoblast and surrounding cells, a fact which has led many researchers to the premature conclusion that there are many different types of cancer. But the degree to which various tumors appear to be different is the same degree to which they're benign, which means that it's the degree to which there are non-cancerous cells within it. The greater the malignancy, the more these tumors begin to resemble each other, and the more clearly they begin to take on the classic characteristics of pregnancy trophoblast. And the most malignant of all cancers, the chorionepitheliomas, are almost indistinguishable from trophoblast cells. For as Dr. Beard pointed out over 70 years ago, they're one and the same. Let's turn now to the question of defense mechanisms. Before we can hope to conquer cancer, first we must understand how nature conquers cancer, 
how nature protects the body and controls the growth of trophoblast cells. All animals contain billions of white blood cells. One of the functions of these cells is to attack and destroy anything that is foreign and harmful to our bodies. For this reason, it would seem logical that they would attack cancer cells also. But since cancer is trophoblast, and since trophoblast is not foreign to the body, but is in fact a vital part of the life cycle, nature has provided it with a very effective means of avoiding the white cells. One of the characteristics of the trophoblast is that it's surrounded by a thin protein coating that carries a negative electrostatic charge. The white cells also have a negative charge, and since similar polarities repel each other, the trophoblast is well protected. Part of the solution to this problem is found in the pancreas, which secretes an enzyme called trypsin. When this enzyme reaches the trophoblast in sufficient quantity, it digests the protective protein coat. The cancer then is exposed to the attack of the white cells, and it dies. Applying this to the embryo, we find that the trophoblast cells there continue to grow and spread right up to the eighth week. And then suddenly, with no apparent reason, they stop growing and are destroyed. Recent research has provided the explanation. It's in the eighth week that the baby's pancreas begins to function. Now it's significant that the upper intestines, near the point where the pancreas empties into it, is the one place in the human body where cancer is almost never found. We note also that diabetics, those who suffer from a pancreas malfunction, are three times more likely to contract cancer than non-diabetics. These facts, which have puzzled medical investigators for years, at last can be explained in light of the trophoblastic thesis of cancer. But what happens if the pancreas is weak, or if the rate of cancer growth is so high that the enzyme trypsin can't keep up with it? Then what? The answer is that nature has provided a backup mechanism, a second line of defense that can do the job even if the first line should fail. It involves a unique chemical compound that poisons the malignant cell while nourishing all the rest. And this is where the vitamin concept of cancer finally comes back into the picture. The chemical compound in question, of course, is vitamin B17, which is found in those natural foods containing nitrilocytes. It's known also as amygdalin, and as such has been used and studied extensively for well over a hundred years. But in its concentrated and purified form, developed by Dr. Krebs specifically for cancer therapy, it is known as laetrile. For the sake of clarity in this presentation, however, we shall favor the more simple name, vitamin B17. The B17 molecule contains two units of sugar, one of benzaldehyde, and one of cyanide, all tightly locked together within it. Now, as everyone knows, cyanide can be highly toxic and even fatal if taken in sufficient quantity. However, locked as it is in this natural state, it's completely inert chemically and has absolutely no effect on living tissue. There is only one substance that can unlock this molecule and release the cyanide. That substance is an enzyme called beta-glucosidase, which we shall call the unlocking enzyme. When B17 comes in contact with this enzyme, not only is the cyanide released, but also the benzaldehyde, which is highly toxic by itself. In fact, these two working together are at least 100 times more poisonous than either of them separately. 
The unlocking enzyme is not found to any dangerous degree anywhere in the body, except at the cancer cell, where it always is present in great quantity. The result is that vitamin B17 is unlocked at the cancer cell. It becomes poisonous to the cancer cell, and only to the cancer cell. There's another important enzyme called rhodonese, which we shall identify as the protecting enzyme. The reason is that it has the ability to neutralize cyanide by converting it instantly into byproducts that actually are beneficial and essential for health. This enzyme is found in great quantities in every part of the body except the cancer cell, which consequently is not protected. Here then is a biochemical process that destroys cancer cells while at the same time nourishes and sustains non-cancer cells. It's an intricate and perfect mechanism of nature that simply couldn't have been accidental. There's much speculation today about carcinogens, the things that supposedly cause cancer. We're told that researchers now have proven that smoking or excessive exposure to the sun or chemical additives to our food, or even certain viruses, all can cause cancer. But as we have seen, the real cause is an enzyme and vitamin deficiency. These other things merely are the specific triggers that start the process. Anything that produces prolonged stress or damage to the body can trigger off the production of estrogen as a part of the healing process. If this goes unchecked because the body lacks the necessary chemical ingredients to fight back, then the result is cancer. Specific carcinogens, therefore, do not cause cancer. They merely determine where it's going to occur. Of course, nature's defenses against cancer include more than just the pancreatic enzymes and vitamin B17. Research has shown that an important role also may be played by other enzymes, other vitamins, oxygenation of the blood, pH levels, and even body temperature. Vitamin B17 seems to be the most vital and direct acting of all these factors, but none of them can be ignored, for they're an interlocking part of the total natural mechanism. Fortunately, it's not necessary for man to understand fully every theoretical aspect of this mechanism in order to make it work for him in practice. All that he really needs to know is the necessity of eating foods rich in all the vitamins and minerals and of minimizing damage or stress to the body. The reality of the vitamin B17 concept of cancer has been proven in the laboratory beyond any doubt. For example, Dr. Dean Burke, head of the cytochemistry section of the National Cancer Institute, has reported that in a series of tests on animal tissue, the B17 had no effect on normal cells but released so much cyanide and benzaldehyde when it came in contact with cancer cells that not one of them could survive. He said, when we add laetrile to a cancer culture under the microscope, we can see the cancer cells dying off like flies. We've said that vitamin B17 is harmless to non-cancer cells. This is true, but perhaps it would be more accurate to say that it's as harmless as any substance can be. After all, even life-essential water, or oxygen, can be fatal if taken in unnaturally large doses. And this is true also of vitamin B17. For example, there is one case of a man who reportedly died from devouring almost a cup of apple seeds. 
Incidentally, the case never has been authenticated, but assuming it's true, if the man had eaten the apples also, he would have obtained enough extra rhodonese from the whole fruit to offset the effect of even that many seeds in his stomach. But that would have required that he eat several cases of apples, which of course would have been impossible in the first place. Nature can do only so much. It cannot anticipate excess of this kind. Therefore, it's wise to follow the simple rule that one should not eat at one time more seeds than he likely would consume if he also were eating a reasonable quantity of the whole fruit. This is a common sense rule with a large safety margin that can be followed with complete confidence. Now, when it comes to the laboratory forms of vitamin B17, known as amygdalin or laetril, there is even less cause for concern. For over a hundred years, standard pharmacology reference books have described this substance as non-toxic. After a century of use in all parts of the world, there never has been a single reported case of related death or even serious illness. In one series of tests, white rats were fed 70 times the normal human dose of laetril, and the only side effects produced were greater appetite, weight gain, and superior health, just what one would expect from taking a vitamin. Aspirin tablets are 20 times more toxic than the equivalent amount of laetrile. And in fact, Dr. Burke of the National Cancer Institute has demonstrated that laetrile is even less toxic than sugar. Let's turn now to the all-important question. Does laetrile or vitamin B17 actually control cancer in human beings? And if it does, is there statistical evidence to support that claim? Spokesmen for organized medicine say no. Almost all official opposition to laetrile is based upon a 1953 report by the Cancer Commission of the California Medical Association. The report said flatly, no satisfactory evidence has been produced to indicate any significant cytotoxic effect of laetrile on the cancer cell. Using this report as a primary reference, government agencies soon declared that it was illegal to prescribe, transport, or even recommend laetrile. The report was written by the committee chairman, Dr. Ian MacDonald, and the committee secretary, Dr. Henry Garland. There were seven other prominent physicians appointed to the committee, but none of them, not even the men who wrote the report, had any personal experience with laetrile. They had based their conclusions entirely on the written records of other experimenters. The scientific judgment of these men perhaps can be best appreciated by noting that MacDonald and Garland were the doctors who had made headlines claiming that there was no connection between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. In fact, MacDonald had claimed that 24 cigarettes per day was a harmless pastime, and then he said, a pack a day keeps lung cancer away. But even more important than this scientific ineptitude is the fact that both men actually had falsified their summary of the Laetrile experiments. For example, their report claimed that microscopic examinations of tumors taken from patients treated with Laetrile showed no evidence of beneficial chemical effect. Yet, ten years later, it was learned that one of the pathologists conducting the examinations, in fact, did report several instances of tumor destruction, which he stated at the time could well have been caused by the action of Laetrile. MacDonald and Garland had not told the truth. 
The report also stated that laboratory technicians had tried unsuccessfully to release cyanide from Laetrile. This was offered as powerful evidence that the entire theory was a fraud. And yet, just two months prior to that, the American Medical Association Chemical Lab had reported that it had been successful in releasing cyanide from Laetrile. And, of course, other labs have done this also, including the California Food and Drug Lab and, of course, the cytochemistry lab of the National Cancer Institute. Again, McDonald and Garland had obscured the truth. Another important aspect of this report is that the patients had received extremely small doses of Laetrile, much too small to prove anything. Today, it's not uncommon to administer two or three grams of the material in a single injection. Generally, 30 or 40 grams are required before the patient can report tangible signs of improvement. But in the California experiment, the maximum total dosage was only about two grams, and even that was divided among 12 injections. Five patients had received only two injections, and five had received only one. So it's not surprising that these experiments had failed to obtain convincing evidence that Laetril worked. What is surprising, however, is that this and similar discredited reports continue to be cited by the American Cancer Society as proof that Laetrile is a hoax. But let's return to the original side of this question. What evidence is there to support the claim that Laetrile does work? As we have seen, the health records of the Hunzikuts, the Eskimos, and many other groups around the world are statistically conclusive that vitamin B17 does control cancer in human beings with an effectiveness approaching 100%. There can be little controversy over that. But what about cancer once it already has started? Can B17 restore a person to health after he has contracted the disease? The answer is yes, if it's caught in time, and if the patient isn't too badly damaged by prior x-ray treatment or toxic drugs. Unfortunately, most cancer victims start taking Laetrile only after their disease is so far advanced that they've been given up as hopeless by routine medical channels. Usually they've been told that they have only a few more months or weeks to live, and it's in this tragic state of near death that they turn to vitamin therapy as a last resort. If they die, and indeed many of them do, then they are counted as statistical failures for Laetrile. In reality, it's a victory for Laetrile that any of them should be saved at this stage. For once a deficiency disease has progressed so far, the damage it does simply can't be reversed. A man who has been shot with a gun can have the bullet removed, but still die from the wound. Likewise, a patient can have his cancer destroyed by vitamin B17 and still die from the irreversible damage already done to his vital organs. And so, in view of this tremendous handicap, the number of terminal patients who have been restored to health is most impressive. In fact, there literally are thousands of such case histories in the medical record. The American Cancer Society has tried to create the impression that the only ones who claim to have been saved by Laetrile are those who merely were hypochondriacs and who never really had cancer in the first place. But the record reveals quite a different story. Let's take a look at just a few examples. Mr. David Edmonds of Pinole, California, was operated on in June of 1971 for cancer of the colon, which also had metastasized or spread to the bladder. When the surgeon opened him up, 
he found that the malignant tissue was so widespread it was almost impossible to remove it all. The blockage of the intestines was relieved by severing the colon and bringing the open end to the outside of his abdomen, a procedure known as a colostomy. Five months later, the cancer had returned, and Mr. Edmonds was told that he had only a few more months to live. Mrs. Edmonds, who was a nurse, had heard about Laetrile and decided to give it a try. Six months later, instead of lying on his deathbed, Mr. Edmonds surprised the doctors by feeling well enough to resume an almost normal routine. An exploratory cystoscopy of the bladder revealed that the cancer there had completely disappeared. At his own insistence, he was readmitted to the hospital to see if his colon could be put back together again. In surgery, they found nothing even resembling cancer tissue. So they reconnected the colon and sent him home to recuperate. It was the first time in the history of the hospital that a reverse colostomy had been performed. Mr. Edmonds now is living a near-normal life of health and vigor. In 1967, Mrs. Joan Wilkinson had a tumor removed from her lower left leg, just below the thigh. Four months later, there was a recurrence requiring additional surgery on the removal of muscle and bone. A year later, a lump in the groin appeared, and a biopsy revealed that her cancer had returned and was spreading. Her doctor told her that surgery would be necessary again, but this time they would have to amputate the leg, the hip, and probably the bladder and one of the kidneys as well. The plan was to open up her lungs first to see if cancer had located there. If it had, then they would not amputate, because there wouldn't be any chance of saving her anyway. At the urging of her sister and a mutual friend, Mrs. Wilkinson decided not to undergo surgery, but to try Laetrile instead. Her doctor was upset by this, and he told her that if she didn't have the surgery, she couldn't possibly live longer than 12 weeks. Five weeks after starting on Laetrile, the lump in her groin had disappeared. Today, years later, she's living a healthy and productive life. In 1972, Dr. Dale Danner, a podiatrist from Santa Paula, California, developed a pain in the right leg and a severe cough. X-rays revealed a carcinoma of both lungs and what appeared to be massive secondary tumors in the leg. The cancer was inoperable and resistant to radiotherapy. The prognosis was incurable and fatal. At the insistence of his mother, Dr. Danner agreed to try Laetrile, although he had no faith in its effectiveness. Primarily just to please her, he obtained a large supply in Mexico, but he was convinced from what he had read in the medical journals that it was nothing but quackery and a fraud. Perhaps it was even dangerous, he thought, for he noticed from the literature that it contained large amounts of cyanide. Within a few weeks, the pain and the coughing had progressed to the point where no amount of medication could hold it back. Forced to crawl on his hands and knees, and unable to sleep for three days and nights, he became despondent and desperate. Groggy from the lack of sleep, from the drugs, and from the pain, Finally, he turned to his supply of Laetril. Giving himself one more massive dose of medication, hopefully to bring on sleep, he then proceeded to administer the Laetril directly into an artery. Before losing consciousness from the medication, Dr. Danner had succeeded in taking at least an entire 10-day supply, and possibly as high as a 20-day supply, all at once. When he awoke 36 hours later, 
Much to his amazement, not only was he alive, but also the cough and pain were greatly reduced. His appetite had returned, and he was feeling better than he had in months. Reluctantly, he had to admit that Laetril was working. So he obtained an additional supply and began routine treatment with smaller doses. Three months later, he was back to work. Since Laetril was developed in 1952, there have been literally thousands of similar case histories reported and documented. And when all these are viewed as a group, they begin to take on the form of numerical statistics, which of course are more meaningful than individual cases. There have been at least 26 published medical papers written by well-known physicians who have used Laetril experimentally in the treatment of their own patients and who have concluded that Laetril is both safe and effective in the treatment of cancer. The American Cancer Society and other spokesmen for the medical establishment would have us believe that only crackpots have endorsed this conclusion. But the doctors who conducted these experiments and those who share their conclusions are not quacks. Here are just a few of the names. In West Germany, there is Dr. Hans Nieper, director of the Department of Medicine at the Silbersee Hospital in Hanover. He is a pioneer in the medical use of cobalt and is credited with developing the anti-cancer drug cyclophosphamide. Undoubtedly, he is one of the world's most famous and respected cancer specialists. In Canada, there is Dr. N.R. Bouzian, director of research laboratories at St. Jean d'Arc Hospital in Montreal. He is a member of the hospital's tumor board in charge of chemotherapy. Also, he is dean of the American Association of Bioanalysts. In the Philippines, there is Dr. Manuel Navarro, professor of medicine and surgery at the University of Santo Tomas in Manila. He is distinguished internationally as a cancer researcher and has over 100 major scientific papers to his credit, some of which have been read before the International Cancer Congress. In Mexico, there is Dr. Ernesto Contreras, who for over a decade has operated the famous Good Samaritan Cancer Clinic in Tijuana. He is one of Mexico's most distinguished medical figures. He received postgraduate training at Harvard's Children's Hospital in Boston. He has served as professor of histology and pathology at the Mexican Army Medical School and as the chief pathologist at the Army Hospital in Mexico City. In Belgium, there is Dr. Mason of the University of Louvain. In Italy, there is Dr. Giudetti of the University of Turin. In Japan, there is Dr. Sakai, a prominent physician in Tokyo. And in the United States, there are such respected names as Dr. Burke of the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Marone of the Jersey City Medical Center, Dr. Krebs, who developed Laetril, Dr. Richardson of San Francisco, and many more from over 20 countries with equally impeccable credentials. These researchers have reported that most of their patients experience several important side effects, including an immediate lowering of blood pressure, improved appetite, an increase in the hemoglobin and red blood cell count, and above all, a release from pain without narcotics. Even if the patient has started laetrile therapy too late to be saved, this last effect is a merciful blessing in itself. In the United States, if a doctor wishes to avoid being labeled a quack, he must practice what is called consensus medicine. In other words, he must use only those treatments that generally are also used by his colleagues. At the present time, in the field of cancer, those are limited to surgery, x-ray, and drugs. 
For comparison, therefore, let's turn now to the results and benefits attained through these so-called orthodox treatments. As we shall see, surgery is the least harmful of the three, and in some cases, it can be a life-saving stopgap measure. Surgery also has the psychological advantage of visibly removing the tumor, and from that point of view, it offers the patient and his family some comfort and hope. However, the degree to which surgery is useful is the same degree to which the tumor is not malignant. The greater the proportion of cancer cells in that tumor, the less likely it is that surgery will help. And the most highly malignant tumors of all generally are considered inoperable. The statistical rate of long-term survival after surgery is, at best, only 10 or 15 percent. And once the cancer has metastasized to a secondary location, surgery has almost no survival value whatsoever. The reason, of course, is that, like the other therapies approved by organized medicine, surgery removes only the tumor. It does not remove the cause. The rationale behind X-ray therapy is essentially the same as with surgery. The medical objective is to remove the tumor, but to do so by burning it away rather than cutting it out. Here also, it's primarily the non-cancer cell that's destroyed. The more malignant the tumor, the more resistant it is to radiotherapy. In fact, this procedure has all the same limitations and drawbacks of surgery, plus one more. It actually increases the likelihood that cancer will develop in other parts of the body. Yes, it's a well-established fact that excessive exposure to radioactivity is an effective way to induce cancer. This had been demonstrated not only among the survivors of Hiroshima, but a research team at the University of Buffalo recently reported that less than a dozen routine medical x-rays to the same part of the body increases the risk of leukemia by at least 60%. And these routine x-rays are nothing compared to the intense radiation used on cancer patients. X-rays induce cancer because of at least two factors. First, they do physical damage to the body, which triggers off the production of trophoblast cells as part of the healing process. Second, they weaken or destroy the production of white blood cells, which, as we have seen, constitute the immunological defense mechanism, the body's front-line defense against cancer. As with all forms of currently popular treatments, once the cancer has metastasized to a second location, there is practically no chance that the radiology patient will live. So, in addition to an almost zero survival value, radiotherapy has the extra distinction of also spreading the very cancer it's supposed to combat. The record of so-called anti-cancer drugs is even worse. Most of them currently in use are highly poisonous, not just to cancer, but to the rest of the body as well. In fact, generally, they are more deadly to healthy tissue than they are to the malignant cell. Most of these drugs are described as radiomimetic, which means that they mimic or produce the same effects as radiation. Consequently, they also suppress the immunological defense mechanism and thus help to spread the cancer to other areas. But whereas X-rays usually are directed to only one or two locations, these chemicals do their deadly work on every cell in the entire body. The use of exotic and highly toxic drugs is the latest fad in cancer therapy. As scores of these drugs are developed each year, cancer patients become the human guinea pigs upon which they're tested. 
The tragic results are well depicted in the following statements taken from just a few of the official chemotherapy reports of the National Cancer Institute. An effort was made to choose patients who were well enough to withstand the anticipated toxicity. Early death of two of the first five patients treated caused a reduction to 8 milligrams per kilogram per day. No significant anti-tumor benefit of any duration was observed. In this study, six of the eight children died. No therapeutic effect was observed. Toxic clinical manifestations consisted of vomiting, hypertension, changes in oral mucous membranes, and diarrhea. Renal damage and cerebral edema were observed at post-mortem examination in each of the six patients who died while receiving this drug. The death of two patients was unequivocally caused by drug toxicity. Eight of the 14 patients who survived their initial courses of therapy showed rapid and general deterioration and died within 10 weeks after therapy began. And so it goes, year in and year out, deadly experiments, fully approved by organized medicine, experiments that can be viewed only as a form of human vivisection. This then is the comparison between vitamin therapy and orthodox treatments. The statistics that follow are taken from the National Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society, and from the clinical records of those physicians who have used Laetril in the treatment of their own patients. They vary widely depending on the age of the patient, the sex, the cancer location, and the degree of malignancy. Consequently, the figures shown will be averages for all kinds and all groups together. This is the story they tell. Of those with advanced metastasized cancer who have been told by their physician that there is no hope, only 15% will be saved when they turn to vitamin therapy, which is not good. But under orthodox treatment, less than one out of 1,000, or one-tenth of one percent, will survive five years. Of those with early diagnosed cancer, at least 80% will be saved by vitamin therapy. But no more than 15% will survive under orthodox treatment. And of those who presently are healthy with no clinical cancer to begin with, close to 100% can expect to be free from cancer as long as they routinely obtain adequate amounts of vitamin B17. But those who subsist on the typical American diet and rely only on the therapies of organized medicine are doomed to a survival rate of just 84%. And that figure includes all ages. It is much less for those above 30. As mentioned previously, these figures will vary widely depending on age, sex, cancer location, and degree of malignancy. Also, they're somewhat arbitrary when it comes to separating early diagnosed cancers from those that are advanced, for often there's a gray area between the two. Nevertheless, in general, they are as accurate as any such tabulation can be, and they tell an impressive story that cannot be brushed aside. Considering the lack of results obtained by orthodox medicine, it's been said that voodoo witchcraft would be just as effective, and perhaps even more so, for at least then the patient would be spared the deadly side effects of radiation and chemical poisoning. Just as we are amused today at the primitive medical practices of history, 
future generations surely will look back at our own era and cringe at the senseless cutting, burning, and poisoning that now passes for medical science. No matter how useless or even harmful current practices may be, consensus medicine demands that they be used by every physician. Regardless of how many patients are lost, the doctor's professional standing is upheld because those who pass judgment through peer review are using the same treatments and getting the same tragic results. On the other hand, if a doctor deviates from this pattern and dares to apply nutrition as the basis of his treatment, even if he attains a high degree of success, he is condemned as a quack. He may lose his hospital privileges and even is subject to arrest. There's no doubt that most of the opposition to vitamin therapy comes from well-intentioned people who simply don't yet have all the facts. But vested interest also plays an important role. As stated at the beginning of this presentation, the science of cancer therapy isn't nearly as complicated as the politics of cancer therapy. The history of how these vested interests have succeeded in influencing the medical profession, government agencies, and public opinion is a fascinating story by itself. But of course, time doesn't permit it to be told here. For the full story of both the science and the politics, read World Without Cancer. This book contains all the information presented in this film, plus a great deal more. It includes extensive extracts from primary research documents. It's amply footnoted so that the serious student can pursue his own avenues of investigation. We recommend that you obtain several copies of this book for the purpose of lending to your friends. The information contained could well save their lives. Once vitamin B17 is as widely understood and available as other vitamins, cancer then will be as rare as is scurvy or pellagra today. When nitrilicides are used perhaps as a routine seasoning to our food, like iodized table salt, then the battle finally will be won. This is our goal, and it's an objective that can be reached right now by anyone who will act upon this knowledge. You and your family now may become secure from cancer. But that's only because someone else has helped to bring these facts to your attention. Can you do less for others? Join with us in this noble task. Together, we can create a world without cancer. it'd be a heck of a lot easier, <laughs> just so long as I'm the dictator. <laughs> knowledge is power. That's why you need the Basic Research Library CD from the American Voice Now. This CD contains the Federalist Papers, 
which are the definitive writings illustrating the intent of the Constitution, and the Anti-Federalist Papers, which read like a crystal ball to everything gone wrong concerning the present-day Constitution. This CD also contains Bovier's Law Dictionary and the Uniform Commercial Code, plus the inaugural speeches of the U.S. Presidents, the U.N. Charter, NAFTA, Hitler's Mein Kampf, the full Communist Manifesto, the Patriot Act 1 and 2, the model anti-bioterrorism law, the Homeland Security Bill, the FBI's Project Medigo, and too much more to mention here. The CD contains over a thousand files. To order your CD, go to www.theamericanvoice.com or call us at 541-826-9050. That's 541-826-9050 for ordering information. the great 1974 film The Godfather 2. There's a scene about halfway through it where Hyman Roth and Michael Corleone and all the American gangsters are gathered on a patio in Havana. And it's Hyman Roth's 67th birthday. And he's giving a slice of the cake each gangster. He's got Louie from Chicago, you run the Copacabana. Frankie, you get the prostitutes. He's dividing up the island among all the American gangsters. And appropriately enough, the birthday cake has the outline of Cuba on it. So he's giving him a slice of Cuba. And while Hyman Roth is doing this, he says, isn't it great to be in a country with a government that respects private enterprise? And that's how media policies have been done in the United States for the past 50 years, and it's increasingly in the last 20 years. Extraordinarily powerful lobbyists duke it out behind closed doors for the biggest slice of the cake. The public knows nothing about it. It doesn't participate. And that's the problem we face. Media is the nervous system of a democracy. If it's not functioning well, the democracy can't function. We're heading toward an election where most people are never going to be in a room with Kerry or Bush. What they learn about the candidates will be what the media shows them or tells them, decides not to show, not to tell. People are faced with critical choices about the future of the country when they go into the voting booth. And I go in, and I have been, through the course of a campaign cycle, subject to false, distorted caricaturing, and I may not even know where it's coming from because often there's an echo effect off places like cable and like radio, and those uh, wrong pieces of information are repeated and repeated. By the time it reaches me, I don't even know what the source was. This is the environment we're living in, and it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's fundamentally undermining democracy, which is based on knowing some good and solid information so I can make an informed choice. When you see the properties Rupert Murdoch owns around the world, the strong conservative point of view that those properties often reflect, it's different than ABC or CBS or NBC. Sure, they reflect a point of view, but not nearly as strong and not nearly as consistently from one ideological perspective. Murdoch actually bought the station in 1985 and actually left us alone for at least the first three years of his ownership, partly because we were so successful and prosperous uh, that there was no reason to uh, monkey with us. At WTTG, our success insulated us to a certain degree.
And it was kind of like being in an office and seeing people come down with the flu around you. We knew the flu eventually might reach us, uh, but we were hoping if we took enough vitamins that we'd never catch the flu. It was clear during those years that Murdoch, who had absolutely adored Ronald Reagan, adored him, um, really had a lot of and a lot of admiration for the group of Republicans that controlled Congress and in Washington, certainly on Capitol Hill. We received an order from one of Murdoch's uh, apparatchiks, if you will that we should cut away from our newscast and start carrying a fawning tribute to Ronald Reagan that was airing at the Republican convention. Uh, we were stunned uh, because up until that point, we were allowed to do legitimate news. And suddenly we were ordered from the top to carry propaganda, carry Republican right-wing propaganda. There was a cultural uh, underpinning to what Murdoch wanted, uh, race issues, AIDS. Uh, I constantly remember complaints that there was too much being done on AIDS. He also couldn't stand the Kennedys. Ted Kennedy, who was a longtime opponent of Rupert Murdoch, uh, and, and one uh, a celebrated occasion, we were ordered to run a long, uncut piece from a current affair uh, that was uh, rehashing the whole matter of uh, Chappaquiddick it had zero news value. We were told you had to run this thing uncut. You could not even edit it down and just run a snippet of it. Uh, I think they evolved uh, in later years, uh, especially after Roger Ailes took over and, and really got the uh, Fox News Channel up and running into a far more sophisticated kind of operation. What we saw in my era was, was really the, the birth of this sort of thing and the roots of what came later. Yeah, I've heard directly from folks uh, both as correspondents and as bookers who've expressed very great reservations, uh, almost uh, as if they're being monitored by a Stalinist system, uh, afraid to be seen talking to the wrong person or uh, having the wrong kind of email exchange. It's very much a, an environment of fear. It was made very clear to us that our activities were being monitored, and if someone wasn't watching it live, they were at least recording it, and they would review it after the fact to see what we did. We weren't necessarily, as it was told to us, a news-gathering organization so much as we were a proponent of a point of view. I'd been warned by people. Um, there were a number of people who pulled me inside and said, look, you know, I don't know. I mean, I know that you want to work and I know that you need a job, but you might want to think twice about taking this job because really it is a very conservative news network. Now that I've learned comedy writing at Fox News Channel, I guess I should be doing stand-up in the clubs. I suspect your research has discovered the memoranda that were written by former Fox employees, which were written by John Moody and by Roger, uh, in terms of setting the tone for the day. Uh, the message of the day is a very political uh, device. There was nothing covert about the way 
the managing editors in New York or Washington operated. They made it perfectly clear what they expected from us. Every morning there was a detailed uh, list of subjects to talk about and not talk about. They were just actually issuing edicts to the reporters to control what they could say and how they could say it. When headquarters sent a memo every morning and said, we want to touch on the following issues, we want to cover the following stories, we want to do them in this particular way, our job and our objective then was to execute the plan. The real revolutionary breakthrough of Fox has been it's eliminated journalism. I mean, that's the thing to understand. What Fox News Channel has done is it's stripped out any notion of journalism as we've traditionally understood it from its product. There is no journalism at the Fox News Channel. The techniques of poll, odd polling and odd graphics of Democrats and weird banners in the lower third of your screen these are all pretty sophisticated techniques, and they work in collaboration with the most genius marketing slogan in history, which is fair and balanced. Graphics are always moving in the background. They've sort of pioneered the use of the American flag as, as, as an icon of your, your, your news broadcast. Probably 1999, I created the Fox News Alert. We were striving to accomplish a sense of urgency. Urgency in a sense that what was about to be delivered after the Fox News alert was very important. Quote unquote shocking news, specifically Columbine and all the other important news stories of that time. But now, looking back, now that I'm not there, I find it interesting that I've seen the Fox News alert used for stories like Benefer. J-Lo and Ben's relationship. I mean, this compared to a school shooting, and there's really no relationship to me. And I don't understand why, based on what we originally created it for, uh, why they would choose to use it for a story like that. Because the sound and the visual is associated, or originally was associated, with things that were much more important. They deliberately blur it, and I find it, I find it very hard to believe, you know, there's no separation between Bill O'Reilly, the interviewer, and Bill O'Reilly with his talking points. I mean, there's just no separation at all. Right. It's very hard on Fox News to separate news from commentary because it all blends together. That's what makes it so ridiculous, that slogan, we report, you decide, because there's no TV news channel in history that's ever reported less. For example, a Brit Hume newscast, um, which is presented as a newscast, um, I think you, you see a lot of attitude and opinion, uh, both from the anchor and from the reports. Fox blurs the line between news and commentary all over the place. And we are to believe that Brit Hume is the anchor of a news outlet. He doesn't bring strong politics to it. He just happens to anchor the newscast like Peter Jennings. On Sundays, Brit Hume turns into a rather caustic right-wing uh, pundit. Look, this goes to Murdoch, too. He doesn't believe in objectivity. He doesn't believe he has contempt for journalism, I think. I mean, they want all news to be a matter of opinion. 
because opinion can't be proven false. And I think that's very dangerous because if people don't have a set of facts that they can agree on, I think it's difficult to reach a consensus on you know, what's correct public policy. It wasn't so much uh, a scripted design that promoted the off-the-cuff ad-libs that you see so often on Fox News Channel. It was sort of a reinforcement. Any ad-lib that made the Democrats look stupid and made the Republicans look smart would get an attaboy, a, a pat on the back, a wink, or a nod. Other journalists use phrases like some people say or officials say when they're trying to insert anonymously information in a story that sort of advances the storyline. Fox does it in a different way. Some people say is Fox's cue that I'm pretending to be an anchor so I can't say this is my opinion or this is Roger Ailes' opinion, but some people say. Journalistically, it's a very peculiar technique because the idea behind journalism is that you're sourcing who you're referring to. This is just sort of a clever way of, of inserting political opinion when you know it probably shouldn't be there. I was given a folder, a little binder, that had the names of all the Fox News consultants, you know, the people who were paid to come on the air to give their opinions. To be a Fox News contributor means you're under contract and you're getting paid a set amount. My services were in great demand in December of uh, 2001. The contract expired in January of 2003. And the first thing that I noticed was that I recognized all of the conservatives who were in the roster. Um, they were very well-known people who would come from, you know, talk radio or from some sort of political background. Um, and so I knew all of those people, and they were very, very strong people. I came in and was always, you know, I was going to call it as I saw it. For example, uh, the edict came down apparently to stop referring to suicide bombings in Israel as suicide bombings to call them homicide bombings. I, mean, I thought that was stupid, and I continued to call them suicide bombings because every bombing that kills someone is a homicide bombing. But when I looked at the liberal roster, um, there was only one person's name who I recognize, which I recognized, and that was Bob Shrum, who is a very well-known speechwriter and political consultant in Washington. The other ones, though, were people I'd never heard of. My entire background was in politics and political journalism, so I knew pretty much all the players in D.C., and I'd never heard of these people. The question came up about the ability of the United States to fight two wars simultaneously. And you know, Sean Hannity, being the you know, right-wing cheerleader that he is, was just you know, incensed that I was, had the temerity to suggest that we couldn't. Facts don't seem to have uh, any effect upon him. What was unusual is it was after that appearance that even though I was under contract to Fox for another uh, eight weeks, roughly, and they stopped using me. When Richard Clark emerged, it was obvious this was a danger to the administration because he had worked at the highest echelons of the Bush administration. And it was almost like Fox News was working off of the playbook coming out of the White House, that he had to be torn down, he had to be turned into a Democrat, a liberal, a carry guy. 
See, one of the things that Fox does and conservatives do is they don't have to win every argument, but if they can muddy the argument enough, if they can turn it into a draw, that to them is a victory because it denies the other side of victory. They launched a major smear campaign. In some ways, it worked. And it was just attack politics on a TV channel. Usually you leave attack politics to a political campaign. They'll try to put on uh, the appearance of being balanced, but really kind of a mismatch. You'll have a Hannity and Combs show where Hannity is a really a good-looking, clean-cut, all-American kind of guy, and, and his counterpart is a little squirrely-looking, frankly. And you kind of say, he's the liberal? Well, maybe he's not so smart after all. And, and, and it sends a subtle message, I think. A lot of the times, the liberals that they get to appear on are either uh, you know, faux liberals, like I would use Susan Estridge as an example of that, a person who was brought on who essentially agrees with the person on the right in a lot of cases, or they would just bring on people who were very weak, you know, people who were not well-known people. Even the people who are uh, supposedly liberal in those panel discussions, they know that uh, to challenge the guests and the other hosts too forcefully. Um, we'll, they'll, they'll certainly find someone else to stand in your place if that's the case. We looked at special reports, one-on-one -on -one interviews. They're once a day. We studied 25 weeks of the one-on-one -on -one guest who appeared on special report from late June through mid-December of 2003. Republicans appeared five times as often as Democrats on one-on-one -on -one newsmaker interviews. That means that Republicans made up 83% of the partisan guests, while Democrats made up just 17%. In addition, the few Democrats that were interviewed for the show tended to be centrist and conservative Democrats, often brought on to affirm Bush administration policies. So what does this all mean? Well, if Fox were the bastion of fairness and balance that it claims to be, we'd see a lot more balance in this prominent interview segment on the network's most prestigious show. Instead, the numbers indicate that Brit Hume and Special Report choose their guests based on political considerations rather than news judgment. My criticism of Fox News isn't that it's a conservative channel. It's the consumer fraud of fair and balanced. It's nothing of the sort. You pitch a story in any given uh, editorial meeting that didn't meet the criteria that they had explained to you, and you got a thumbs down. Fox News Channel's uh, stated uh, practice was to embarrass, humiliate, challenge, or, uh, or, or disrupt whatever uh, Jesse Jackson and whatever Jesse Jackson did. But we were told by our bureau chief on many occasions that the Reverend Jesse Jackson was one of our targets. Anything we could do or say that would embarrass him, humiliate him, discredit him, we were encouraged 
to find the information, and we were encouraged to report the information. We from Domino's Pizza to Domino's, because we're more than pizza. Take Ronald Reagan's 90th birthday. Chicken, pastas, For Fox News Channel viewers, though, as I was instructed, this was something akin to a holy day. This was Ronald Reagan's birthday, and so my assignment was to go to the Reagan Presidential Library in Simi Valley, California, and to do live shots from uh, before dawn until, uh, until dark uh, to report on Ronald Reagan's birthday. That was pretty much the sort of vague, broad-based assignment that I had that day. It wasn't anything specific until they saw my first three or four live shots early in the morning and uh, Mr. Moody called in to say, what is he doing out there? Apparently my live shots weren't celebratory enough. You know, there was a, a class of, uh, of fourth graders who came to the library that day to take the tour. Um, and uh, they were lined up and they sang happy birthday uh, to you. But that was pretty much the extent of the celebration. There weren't very many people at the Presidential Library. There wasn't a celebration of any organ in any organized way going on. And I was frankly at a bit of a loss as to what to say or do to make it seem like there was a big celebration on Ronald Reagan's birthday. So I got in trouble for that one. I got in big trouble for that one. In fact, I was suspended. What you will see, of course, is intensive discussion about what we call the wedge issue. You'll hear, you know, uh, affirmative action. You'll hear abortion. You'll hear certainly gay rights. Uh, God in, in uh, separation of church and state issues will be on television every single day. I'd read I was maybe pretty. Their job, which is what the right-wing Republicans want to do, is to divide America up. Ignore the important economic, healthcare, and environmental issues, and they do that extremely the one that began in March of 1964, when she was cast in the They did start about gay marriage, but I think that they got sort of blindsided. They all of a sudden couldn't show the usual footage they used to show because they used to love to show the footage, of course, the parades and the black leather and you know the drag queens. Then they had you know very kind of normal middle-aged couples getting married and pushing on the steps of city hall. So I've noticed a certain kind of uh, death going out of the gay marriage thing. But that, the opposite of uh, where they picked up the slack is on anything to do with religion, anything to do with the Ten Commandments, anything to do with God. They're going to push God very, very hard, particularly going up into Bush's re-election. I think we should really get married. I'm going to go and speak to Brian. Christian fundamentalist movement is one that believes that we're right, you're wrong, no matter what. And I saw a lot of that at Fox. We're right. You're wrong. No matter what. The Rally Factor is probably the perfect example of everything that's wrong with Fox News Channel. They have stories that are selected primarily to upset Republicans and Democrats and prop up the Republican Party. You have a hostility towards guests that disagree with the host. And you have a host who, in service of his conservative politics, will, will distort facts and misrepresent things and uh, will, in some cases, just fabricate.
Jeremy Glick is the son of a, a Port Authority worker who died in, at 9-11, and he had signed an anti-war petition, and O'Reilly had to have him on. And they were so persistent about getting me on the O'Reilly show because they found out that I was on the advisory board and signed a statement that was against the war and that I was directly impacted by 9-11. They began to spend a lot of time together. What was the success on? that I had on the O'Reilly show had to do, obviously, with preparation in my life and that political, political work in my life, but it also had to do with just before, just practice and preparation. What I did, and it was just someone gave me a bunch of strategies. What I did is I taped the shows. I had somebody tape the shows for a couple weeks, and what I did is I took a stopwatch that I used to use for running sprints in high school, and I would see when he has a hostile you know, guest where he knows that he's going to anticipate profound disagreement, and I would time how long it takes for him to cut them off. Patty Boyd Harrison would come to know the depth of Eric. I said, I'm shocked that you're surprised. And basically just made the only point I wanted to make. And he played Layla. And it was extremely intimidating sitting down in the studio because he's really tall. And like, they he the laws over you. And absolutely staggeringly beautiful and powerful. Jeremy was pretty. Pretty and cool I during it, uh, but and he was giving his political views, which were oh, very to the left of O'Reilly's. Too hot to handle. Why were you torn? So I don't really yeah, care what you think politically. And I said, obviously you do care because A, you brought me on the show, and B, I told him that he uses 9/11 and sympathy with the 9/11 families and the and the lives lost to rationalize his narrow right-wing agenda. And it's unfair for O'Reilly to evoke both my mom and my father in the interview, especially when I wasn't. You know what I mean? She is, my mom is a grieving widow for a prematurely and a violent, horrific turn in their lives. My dad was only 55. He was, they were working people, with, you know, working class, middle class. Like, they were not retiring for a while, they, you know, and their life is basically destroyed. You know, their life together is destroyed and destroyed in circumstances that I wouldn't wish on uh, my worst enemies, including Bill O'Reilly. You see him gesturing to security guards. Then came the after-film performance. After they were off the air, he said to the kids on the effect, get out of my studio before I fucking tear you to pieces. So Jeremy, and I've talked to him since, went, actually went to the green room to get a cup of coffee. And the executive producer and the assistant encouraged me to leave the building because they were, quote, concerned that if O'Reilly ran into me in the hallway, he would end up in jail. Next day, I just turned on and watched the, the follow-up and saw my views totally distorted. Next thing I know, I was saying Bush plan 9-11. That paints me as, as a fringe conspiracy nut. This kid said nothing, nothing, in the, the uh, original interview with O'Reilly about uh, President Bush and his father, Bush the Elder, orchestrating the attack on their own country. 
He said nothing of that sort. Glick said, can I sue him? And so I called the lawyer who was in my case of Fox versus Dutton and Franken. He says, well, the kid has to prove that O'Reilly knew he was lying. And O'Reilly is so crazy, he lies so pathologically, that it's harder to prove that O'Reilly knew he was lying. So oddly enough, if someone has a record of crazily lying, <laughs> it is harder to sue them for defamation. Many of the themes that are promoted on the Fox News channel have to do with generating fear, whether that's fear of immigration, a fear of sexual difference, a fear of racial difference. When you pander to fear, it's a great motivator and organizer. You've got to keep people alarmed. That they really love this sense of fear and danger, even when it's not there. And so when something is actually dangerous, as some things are, uh, they go completely overboard. And all sense of perspective is lost. So that anthrax, which I guess affected four or five people adversely, no question about it, is far more dangerous than, you know, the poisoning of our air. The motivator is fear. And then the payoff is, you know, we're going to go out and kill the bad guys. And, you know, it's a very simple black and white world that they uh, paint and portray. Terrorism has become the all-purpose fear weapon because now everything is converted into terrorism. And, of course, if you have a constant sense of unease, then you're going to look to the government to protect you. You're going to look to strong government. There are these enemy out there, it's an ill-defined enemy, but as long as we're fighting them and we're killing them and he's looking presidential, then nothing else again is discussed. What was interesting is in the climate of the Bush administration that much of that fear, the emotion, uh, was purposely misdirected by the right wing uh, into uh, the war in Iraq. The type of coverage Fox offers, and all of them offer, but Fox is probably the most pristine version, is completely consistent with Bush's, um, with, with the strategy of the Bush administration. A, to uh, prevent discussion of things that are not going well, like, for instance, the economy or the Medicare bill. There's no doubt that the war against Iraq, a country that did not attack us, could only proceed based on fear. The first rule of being a great propaganda system, and why our system is vastly superior to anything in the old Soviet Union, is not that people think they're being subject to propaganda. If people don't think that, they aren't looking for that, they're much easier to propagandize. And that's the genius of our media system, is a system of ideology, of control, compared to an authoritarian system. Fox has made a decision uh, to present the Iraq War as a success, and as an ongoing success. The senior producer told the two or three writers for her news hour, she told us, now just keep in mind it's all good. This is such a fair and balanced issue. Keep it positive. 
we've got to emphasize all the good that we're doing. She at that point made a reference to rebuilding schools, bringing democracy to Iraq. And then she said, see, big progress. Yoo-hoo for us. Things were actually at that point going quite badly. Many more American soldiers were dying each day, and God knows how many Iraqis. The people survey is interesting because you were looking at questions of, of basic true-false kind of factual nature. Did we find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq? These are very simple questions with very simple answers. And what the survey found was that the more likely you were to watch Fox News Channel, the more likely you were to have completely incorrect assumptions about these things. All the research shows a very high correlation in the case of Fox News uh, with people watching it uh, with having a very confused notion of the world on one hand, especially of foreign policy in the Middle East, and also being strongly supportive of the government and power. And this is an extraordinarily disturbing trend for the media. I mean, for any self-respecting journalist, if you're told the more people consume your media, the, the less they'll know about the subject and the more they'll support government policy. And that's, that's exactly the worst thing any journalist would ever want to hear or should want to hear. In terms of Fox overall, I think we have got to appreciate, and when we look at them, is to understand that this is an adjunct of the Republican Party. What Fox specializes in is punditry, basically getting marching orders from the Republican National Committee or some political operative, and then having people pontificate about it, have guests come on and talk about it, have pseudo-experts come on and, and discuss it. Their main allegiances, I'm talking about the people at the top, is to the Republican Party. Murdoch is, is absolutely to his core uh, a partisan, and uh, he makes no secret about that. So. The first person who made the call to say that George W. Bush had been elected President of the United States was the person who was in charge of Fox News' election analysis division, the people that crunched the exit polling numbers. That person was a gentleman named John Ellis and he is George W. Bush's first cousin. At around two in the morning on election night, the, a new set of data had come in, and it was complex data with, from precincts all over Florida. The proper answer in analyzing that data unquestionably was you couldn't tell. It was too close to call. There was simply no clear winner. Instead, John Ellis called it as a clear win for George Bush. Fox News then interrupted its ongoing election coverage and announced that George Bush had been elected President of the United States. Now what's significant about that is not the intervention of the President's cousin to declare his relative the new President of the United States. It was the fact that within minutes, ABC, NBC, CBS also fell right in line calling Bush as the winner. There's no way that they could have crunched the data in that time to come to that conclusion. In fact, quite the opposite. They should have come to the conclusion which Associated Press came to, which was that you couldn't make a call. When Fox made the call that Bush had won, 
and the other networks followed on, that created the perception that Bush was the winner. In fact, he wasn't. But that perception was what really held for the next 37 days. And I would suggest to you that that call on election night had more to do with making George Bush president than any recount or ballot design issue. In the old Soviet Union, you used to hear about the party line shifting 180 degrees. Watching Fox News at the end of Clinton, where it was all attack mode, where they were just vicious watchdogs, and then Bush takes power, and they're like little lap dogs. It was like night and day, and it's a party line shift. They will give you... The, the, almost the full Bush stump speech, no matter where it is, and no matter how many times they've shown it, got cut live to these campaign rallies as if there was going to be real news in them, as if Bush was going to say anything earth-shattering. Fox portrays his every action as a heroic move, as a you know something dramatic and significant. I imagine it's pretty hard for the Fox producers. Some days, George Bush doesn't do anything interesting, and yet they've got to find something that makes him heroic that day. Most people just started waking up and saying, oh, you mean we don't have the fairness doctrine anymore? I can't tell you how many times when I was a political candidate running for office, I would have somebody come up to me on the street and say, now, I saw your opponent on TV the other day. Aren't they supposed to give you equal time? And I didn't even know for years that we lost that in the Reagan era, that for years we haven't had the ability to expect both sides to be adequately covered. Clearly on the Republican side, what we do know is that for years they have coordinated what they call uh, their message of the day. So you'll hear on the floor of the House, you'll hear on Rush Limbaugh, you'll hear on uh, Fox and Rupert Murdoch's network the issue of the day which they will pound away at which then creates the echo chamber, which resonates throughout America. You see a picture of George Bush, you expect to see, hear organ music that would come out of a church swelling, the, the backlit head, you know, the, the Madonna look, and then a picture of John Kerry flashes, and then you hear the, the devil's voice, this is the devil, he is evil. Every week, there's so many ways you can play the economic story. At Fox News, it's only the upbeat. They select statistics that prove the economy is moving up, and thank God for President Bush for doing it. When the market goes down, one of the things you often hear is the market is worried about a carry victory. And how they know that the market went down because everybody had carry on their mind as opposed to everyone was worried about interest rates or everyone looked at the earnings figures and thought they weren't as good as projected. But they, they, they love to pretend that they're Karnak the Magnificent. They can read the mind of the market. What makes Murdoch particularly dangerous is that he's foremost uh, a politician. And he will use his immense media power to shape the content, especially the news, that furthers his interests and those of his allies, including uh, the conservative Republican community. After all, Fox News is nothing more than a 24-7 uh, political ad for the GOP. MSNBC, I worked as a senior producer on the Donahue, Phil Donahue primetime show. 
But at MSNBC, from the beginning, they were saying to us, we have to be balanced. And for months, they were telling Phil, giving him instructions not to be too confrontational. Don't be too partisan. Don't be too angry. You have to be balanced. Now, by the end of our tenure at uh, Donahue Show with MSNBC, balance wasn't enough. And this is the Fox effect. They mandated that any time we had, if we had two uh, left-wing guests, we had to have three right-wing guests. If we had one anti-war guest, we had to have two pro-war guests. And that's how we ended the show. So we're like trying to outfox Fox. You cannot outfox Fox. But MSNBC and the others have tried. CNBC has tried to outfox Fox. Since the corporate structures uh, and corporate ownership of the other channels does not allow anyone to counter-program against Fox, you know, in television, the inclination is imitation. It's influencing its competitors. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, uh, MSNBC hired Joe Scarborough. That's why CNN in, in recent weeks has taken to reporting pretty much anything the Bush White House tells it to report. There is a sense now that there is money in the flag, and Fox knows that, and its competitors know that Fox is on to something. Today, news business is geared toward entertainment. It's geared toward, in some cases, propaganda. It's geared toward, ultimately, the bottom line of a big corporation that owns the station, that owns the news operation. It's called the news business for a reason. Uh, it is news, but it's a business. They don't like to spend money doing serious stories. They like to do cheap, easy stories that uh, will get a gut reaction. The thing I think that distresses me more than anything else is that a lot of the news content is not coming straight out of the newsrooms, particularly in television, um, but out of the promotion department. It's expensive to spend time exploring the issues. It's cheap, and everything now is a question of money. If you go to the National Association of Black Journalists, or you go to the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, or you talk to Asian American journalists who are on air, you talk to Native American journalists, you're seeing a diminution in the number of journalists that are locally based. Because in order to save money, and in order to get economies of scale and scope, a lot of the broadcasters are shrinking their employee, employee pool, and they're shrinking them in the news sector, sectors of their stations. So a lot of the young, vibrant people who are getting experience as on-air talent in small towns are seeing those opportunities increasingly diminish. When you let a small number of companies have this much concentrated power, they will always abuse it. It's simply unacceptable in a free society. And if you don't change the system, we can be having this conversation for the next 50 years. We'll be talking about Rupert Murdoch III. Just as healthcare and the economy um, and the environment are political issues that people are familiar with, corporate control over the media is also a major political issue. When you have one network that is so powerful and so intent upon warping the dialogue, it limits that discourse. It actually influences it to be a narrower discourse. 
And that's what I think citizens ought to be up in arms about. We can't accept this anymore. If we do accept it, we are handing on to our children and our grandchildren a lesser democracy than we inherited. And that's the one thing we don't have a right to do. It's ironic that it's been, what, 30 years since Patty Chayefsky wrote Network. But I really believe that those prophetic words that were spoken by Peter Finch when he finally got out of the chair and said, it's time, go to the window, shake your fist and say, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. I think those are resonant words today. I think people are genuinely upset. Get off your rear end and become an activist. And if you see things that are biased, complain to the outlet and say you won't be watching it anymore. Content has to change. Power has to shift. And I think the only way we can shift power is the only way we've ever been able to shift power, by directly confronting those who hold it and taking it back. Policies have been made behind closed doors by very powerful special interests without any public involvement or participation. And what we've learned in the last few years is when the public gets aware of this and they start organizing, we can change these policies and we can make a system that actually responds to the needs of the people of this country. America's digital destiny is hanging in the balance now. With the right activism, public outcry, we can shape a media environment so that in every community there are channels that actually serve the public interest. If you are a citizen at home right now, when you turn on talk radio, all you hear is one right-wing nut or another right-wing nut, why don't you go to the radio station and say, I'm sick and tired of this. There are progressive voices out there. We want a balance. If a Fox TV station in, in your town is broadcasting reports that you know to be inaccurate, that you know to be warping the news, you as citizens have power. Groups like Code Pink and others have actually demonstrated outside television stations and have made noise about it. We need to basically play the Paul Revere role to uh, you know, kind of ride out into the night alerting people that uh, there's something bad going on here and, and something needs to be done about it. Here's what I'd love to have happen. Family from Nebraska goes to Washington for the family vacation. We're going to visit the Air and Space Museum. We're going to visit the mall. We're going to visit the Vietnam Memorial. And we're going to visit the FCC to see a commissioner or two to tell them about what we care about. When that happens, might start to see a little more attention. But you know, it ain't gonna happen if you don't try it. We can actually win here. The whole strength of the system's been based on people being apathetic and not thinking they could do anything about it. As soon as we rise up, it collapses like a house of cards. That's the extraordinary development of the last two years. It is not an issue of the right or the left. It is a populist issue about people finally saying it's their democracy and they aren't going to let five companies control the airways for corporate convenience at the expense of public necessity. 
I come from a community in the in the state of Maine that's mostly uh, fishing towns, small coastal communities, and uh, for many years we were served by one radio station that everybody listened to. I mean, it was local radio. Every time I debated an opponent when I was running for office, everybody would tune it in in their cars or their home radio, and they would hear what we were feeling differently about. And when Clear Channel bought it, that was the end. You couldn't even count on somebody looking out the window and telling you if it was a good day or a bad day or if the fog was coming in. But what was really interesting to me was that people got so angry, there was a local group that organized and attempted to get a low-power FM radio license. Uh, they had a hard-fought battle. Uh, Clear Channel opposed them, and they actually won, and now there is a little radio station operated out of a garage in that town. All volunteers, anybody can play the music that they want, but at 5 o'clock every day, they tune in to the dialogue of what's going on in that community. What we've been doing over the last decade is to create this alternative infrastructure so that we now have an online audience of 10,000 unique visitors per day to our homepage plus the over-the-air audience of our new uh, low-power FM radio station. And very soon, we're going to have public access TV in this community. So we're, we've got three legs of a, of a stool here of an alternative media infrastructure that gives us a means of communicating among ourselves and not just relying on the occasional letter to the editor in the corporate newspaper or almost no coverage in uh, the broadcast media because they're all owned by Clear Channel and, and uh, Sinclair or Fox. When the Youth Media Council started, one of our first projects was to um, recruit unorganized youth of color, teenagers, and have them study the Fox affiliate station in the Bay Area. When we did the study, we were able to do an editorial meeting. It was the first time in probably 10 or 15 years that a constituency group locally had actually ever came and demanded anything from them. They just get to do whatever they want. Nobody cares. Nobody understands that they can demand anything. So it was a pretty momentous moment for us, you know, to, to both demand something and get it from a Fox affiliate, but also to be one of the first, you know, folks to come forward. And that's, that's something that I think is a, is a trend that we're trying to start now. Marginalized people don't have any concept that they can go to an editor in groups and demand something. Oh. 
have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family.
Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Melody Cedarstrom, and you're listening to Financial Survival. I'm here with my co-host, Alfred Addis, to bring you our opinion and commentary on today's economic and political events for Monday, May 18th, 2015. Good afternoon, Al. Hi, Melody. Oh, it was an interesting day in the markets today, another up day in gold. We have gold up 170 currently in the New York spot at 12.26. Yes, silver up 12 cents today at 17.71. Platinum's up 7 at 11.78. And palladium's down 5 at 7.91. What made it interesting was uh, gold was able to hold on to its lead today. When you have the USDX trading over a full point, 1.02 to the upside at 94.25. And not only that, you'd think crude oil would have been hammered, uh, but it was only down 0.06 at 59.63. So we'll have to see if those leads in gold continue through tomorrow. But uh, I don't know, you would think a little more pressure on the gold. So a good day. Good day in gold. The markets today, the Dow was up 25 points, 18,298. The NASDAQ up 30 at 5,078. The S&P up 6 at 2,129. 10-year yields beginning to move back up 2.23%. A little pressure on the euro in the same way with the euro. With that type of gain in the dollar, you'd think the euro would be down much more than 0.70. You'd think it would at least be an equal at 1.13 is the euro. And uh, Germany was up uh, one and a quarter percent and uh, a mixed bag in the Asian markets. Uh, um, so it's, um, you know, it was just uh, another Monday. But it would be, I think what you're beginning to see, Al, is perhaps people are going to, people are beginning to understand that these markets are at, places where they shouldn't be. In fact, there was a note this morning that was sent out by uh, Bank of America, and it was a warning and basically talked about investors remain trapped in the twilight zone. And they talked about the transition between the end of QE and the first rate hike by, rate hike by the Fed. And uh, so it, it's uh, uh, there's more reports that are coming out that, that show that, the, you know, and again, I'm using their numbers. I mean, we've talked all along that the economy is not what it is, but this is based on the numbers from the federal you know, government and so forth and viewing it from a Bank of America position that uh, certainly the, the, the numbers and the reports are beginning to show that uh, the economy is not what it needs to be in order to absorb the shock uh, from uh, uh, the Fed to uh, hike rates. So uh, the market's just not uh, robust enough. Uh, and of course, we've been talking about that for ages. But uh, the important part of this is that uh, uh, they're sending a note around warming, warning that uh, you know there's a, a situation uh, on the horizon. Um, investors are too optimistic, uh, but we're also beginning to see a little bit of crack in the consumer confidence uh, with some numbers that came out last week. And uh, you have stock prices at record highs, and you're beginning to see some outflows in these, uh, in these various funds. So, again, um, a warning going out to investors from Bank of America, uh, the Merrill Lynch uh, division, and um, the bear is here.
That's a response. And but that's the, a comment about me, Melody. I'm not amused. But, they, but what they're also telling their investors, and this is the most important part, Al, is that they're telling them it's time to hold more cash and gold. Really? And the, the way Bank I Bank of America said it's time to hold more gold. More gold, more cash, and gold. Now, if they're if they're a, a, a bull on gold, meaning the price is going to go higher, you would think that uh, you know the you know cash will be worth less. So it's. Uh, there'll be an initial moment if things go badly. There'll be an initial moment where cash is more valuable, and I'm by going badly if we go into something like a depression. But the problem is, in the midst of that depression, everyone who owes money on debt, they have existing loans, they are going to be hurt by deflation because they have to repay their loans with more valuable and expensive dollars. If they borrowed $100,000, they still have to pay $100,000, but the difference is the purchasing power of that $100,000 might be 110000 or 120000 as compared to the purchasing power of the original 100000 that was borrowed. Although these differences are, it's hard to explain this. And, you know, I mean, if people, if you don't understand it, it's confusing. But the point remains that you can't pay off with more valuable dollars without going broke yourself. And who is the biggest debtor in the world? That's the government of the United States. And they're going to be clipped by deflation just like everyone else. And when they get to that a certain point, the deflation is going to force them to say, that's it, we quit the dollar. We can't deal with these dollars. They're growing more valuable. I think this is what you're seeing now, Al. I think this is why you're seeing that your cash is a little more important, why the dollar is at the, at the higher levels than what we've seen in the past. And I think this is the area that we're in. So, yeah, the future from here, no, those dollars are going to become less valuable. And we're not talking about we'll today or moment, in the very near future, but you're going to but see, you're going to see inflation. You're, you have to see inflation. It's the Absolutely. only thing way government can survive is if we see inflation. They want inflation. They're going to have inflation, and that's the whole point. The dollar is going to become less worthless or, or more worthless, less and valuable. It becomes completely worthless. Uh, and that, you know, and as it becomes more less valuable, as it becomes less valuable, people will begin to realize how do they protect their, their, their retirement funds. How do they protect the money they've deposited into the bank? When they say deposit money, what we're really talking about, you have worked for a number of years. I'm talking to anybody who's listening to this program. And based on your work, you have accumulated a certain amount of earnings that you've saved. Those savings are a reflection of your wealth. Your wealth is your blood, sweat, and tears that you put into your job. And you've got that stored perhaps in a bank account. Eventually, you're going to see that the inflation is eating your bank account. You're going to say, wait a second, that's my blood, sweat, and tears that's represented by those pieces of paper or those ones and zeros on the computer hard drive how do I protect how do I preserve the wealth and the answer will almost certainly be gold and silver coins and you know bullion if you care to go into it if you're wealthy enough to buy bullion but it'll be precious metals that will hold their hold their purchasing power while everything denominated in paper dollars and digital dollars are going to go they're just they're, they're going to be losing propositions um, so 
We'll see it eventually. When are we going to see it? Don't know. But increasingly, you know, people really... I was listening to an interview today that I want to listen to a second time. I haven't had a chance to do this. And they pointed out, if I understood correctly, last week Thursday, they had a an extraordinary blip in the credit markets, the bond markets of Europe and around the world. Yeah. And according to one of the people speaking, what happened is all of a sudden the the rate on bonds jumped and they lost $500 billion in paper assets. Huh? And they were speculating as to what caused this to happen, but they think this might be a precursor of big trouble. They compared it back to 2008, and they had a similar event back in 2008 that seemed to... Um, it was a preliminary event. In retrospect, it may have helped trigger the Great, the great Recession. Um, they saw something happen, and they don't know why. And that's the mystery. They don't know if this was something like a flash crash. In the 2008 example, they brought up a, uh, a congressman whose name escapes me at the moment, but at the time, he described it as a bank run on essentially the central banks of the world. And there was a tremendous loss, and now we've seen it again, and they are wondering, is this what caused it? They don't know. Is it something like a flash crash? Is it done intentionally, and who stands to benefit from it? Is it an act of economic war where some foreign nation decided to um, you know, attack uh, the West? With, with us, and they didn't have an explanation as to why it happened, but they still said, they pointed out, if I understood correctly, $500 billion paper money just disappeared in the context of this event. $500 billion, they were using $80 billion a month during quantitative easing three to stimulate the economy. $500, $500 billion would translate into something like six months' worth of quantitative easing just disappeared. Now, what does it all mean? I'll try to find out between now and when we do the program tomorrow and see if I can understand this more clearly. But assuming that I understand it roughly correct, in, in a way that's roughly correct, strange things are happening. And this may be part of the reason why gold had a good week last week and even rose a little bit today and uh, we'll watch and see but well they are all to some degree interconnected i mean sure. it's hard to have the, a huge connection when the markets are so rigged um but certainly i mean everybody knows the bond market is just a, a teensy bit just a matter of time until that bubble breaks and yep. uh certainly we've seen our bonds i mean our, our 10 year went from you know three weeks ago they were you know one point uh you know seven zero, and and now they they went as high last week to 2.25 uh um they came down a little bit but now they're head now they're beginning to to head up and i think these are just more or less signs that um you know, the, the system is ready to break apart. We are seeing the cracks. And um, um, it was an interview. I was referring yeah, to an I interview see, with Bill Holder. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't believe I don't believe it was a 
sign or I mean when really when you think about the the, the amount of money in bonds, five hundred billion really isn't you know although it could have some sort of a lingering after effect with derivatives and so forth because um, you never know what these markets do and it, it could have been just a computer glitch and and everything else so you know if it was a more than a one event then I would look upon it as something more substantial but being a one-time event um I mean, the, system, watch is, the system is at a point where it is ready to break. And, uh, I mean, when you have Bank of America warning its investors to hold gold and cash, and and uh, we're seeing all these, uh, I mean, these numbers cannot continue to be, I mean, there were reports of the National Association of Homeowners, uh, Home Builders today. Uh, they released um, uh, their sentiment index. That slipped to 54 this month, down two points from 56 in April. And, of course, anything above 50 indicate more builders view sales conditions as good rather than poor. And it is up from a year ago. However, you know, they, they, can, they can no longer blame the bad weather uh, as far as what is making this, uh, um, you know, the builder sentiment uh, go down. Uh, for April. So, I mean, these are all little signs that show uh, new home sales. They slid uh, to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of 481,000. Uh, 481,000, and that's a reversal from the annual sales pace of 543 in February. And that was the strongest performance in seven years back in February. So, um, things are not. Uh, um, you know, the government tells us we're in the midst of a recovery or the recovery is here and the rest of it. It just doesn't wash. It doesn't match up with an objective reading of the just just facts that are available. How many homes are being sold? How much money, you know, how much, how deeply are people going into more debt? It's true that public sentiment is improving, but that doesn't mean anything. In fact, you know, if you're, if you, if it's true that you buy low and you sell high, if that's the secret to making a profit in investments, then one of the things that we know is that the stock markets are at all-time highs, and when we hit that high point, it will be a time when public sentiment is very positive and confident. When we hit the buy, if you're going to sell high, you'll be doing it when everybody thinks you're crazy. Everybody is optimistic. Everybody is saying, yay, yay, everything's working out fine. And if you're going to buy low, you're going to be buying when everybody thinks you're crazy to buy. Well, to some degree, we have a circumstance like that in terms of gold and stocks right now. Gold are at the, if you're going to sell high, now is a good time. They're at an all-time high. People are concerned. They don't want to sell. They say, oh, I think it's going higher. I think it'll go to 19000 or 20000 Well, maybe it will, maybe it won't. But it is at an all-time high, and people have a lot, are gaining confidence, at least in some places. They're gaining confidence. That's not a bad sign to say, you know, now's the time to dump those stocks. We're at a high. You're going to, buy, you're going to, you're going to sell high and buy low. All right, where do we, what do we do? If we sold the stocks, what do we want to buy that's low? Well, find something where the investment price is down considerably. And, you know, one of the first things you're going to look at is gold and silver. 
It is, right now, you have an opportunity to sell high and buy low. Sell stocks high, buy gold low. They can either stay in the twilight zone. (laughs) Stay in the twilight zone, folks. That's the problem. There was just one more thing I wanted to say. And, 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 you know, when you look at fixed income, I mean, you you have these corporations out there. They're raising their dividends to keep people in there. They're buying back their shares, putting billions and billions of dollars into their, you know, buying back their shares, doubling their – I read uh, there were companies that were, you know, increasing their dividends by, you know, 50 percent. I mean, it's like, really? I mean, what is wrong with this picture? Uh, when you don't have the, um, the the true economy to support any of that, and you know we talked about the new homes, how their their sales have gone down considerably. Um, each home that is built creates an average of three jobs for a year, and generates about ninety thousand in tax revenue. And so, when you don't have those new homes that are being built, and I mean those that's huge, three three jobs for a year. And ninety thousand in tax revenue. Well, we can go out and start building homes right now, but the trick is to sell them—not just to build them, but to sell them. And once those and, rates begin to move up, and you hear you hear all these real estate people say, "Well, you know, people bought homes when rates were five and eight percent with no problem," and uh, well, that was before they got the taste of two percent to three percent. Mm-hmm. Now that they've had that taste. Um, you know, that's the problem the government has mm-hmm. when they manipulate interest rates. You can get down into what's called a Keynesian trap, where you drop interest rates so low that you can no longer raise them. Mm-hmm. All right, you lose your ability to manipulate the economy by adjusting interest rates because you've dropped interest rates so close to zero that. The government, though, everyone expects you've got to keep them close to zero. And if you try to raise them, say, oh, my gosh, the sky is falling. The sky is falling here on this program also, and that means it's time for some commercials. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back in a moment. Please stay tuned. obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out when life is too much to handle use apothecary herbs emotional stress formula feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee you've waited long enough call apothecary herbs now toll free 866-229-3663 That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3Ws.thepowerherbs.com. Since the beginning of the United States,
United States. Kings have sought it. Nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 are on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. I'm Alfred Addisk here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. Programs brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver, 1-800-375-4188. All your gold and silver coin needs. What's next, Melody? During the break, we were talking about how the labels on packaged meats, steaks, and other cuts of meat in the U.S. that say where the animals were born, raised, and slaughtered will have to be dropped or revised after the World Trade Organization <coughs> ruling. Uh, the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative said today that the WTO rejected a final U.S. appeal, deciding that the U.S. country of origin labels put Canadian and Mexican livestock at a disadvantage. Uh, you'd have to say that this administration was uh, had already revised the labels to try to comply with their obligations, uh, but the, the Agricultural Secretary said that if the WTO ruled against the final U.S. appeal, Congress will have to weigh in to avoid retaliation from the two neighbor countries. Now, what's funny is here this ruling is to drop it because it puts Canadian and Mexican livestock at a disadvantage, but the U.S. meat industry, our meat industry, views this as a victory because they don't want the labels on there. They were too burdensome. So my yeah, question uh... so, so just wait until they don't have the business anymore. Wait until they lose billions of dollars and... Um, uh, you know what I think it means without knowing for sure. It's hard to know what they mean by these labels, but if is there any way of telling the country of origin? I mean, it may be, will it will it no. show up on the barcode or something like that, even if you can't read the label that says this is a product of Mexico, this is a product of Canada. That's not going to be there anymore. What about barcodes and so on? Where I'm going with this is, what if they have a callback? What if some of the meat is tainted? I'll never know. 
What is, if you don't know the country that the meat is coming from, how do you know what meatpacking plant it's coming from? How do you know ultimately what farm where it was raised, where where the beef were raised? And I'd be surprised. I will bet that the that the barcode will still have that information. You'll still be able to figure that out if push come if there's a serious problem. It's just that the the the, the consumers they won't have a clue. They won't know where it's built. And here's the other thing that's interesting to me. Insofar as the World Trade Organization is saying, well, this would be. This would be bad business for Canada. It would be discriminating against Mexico. What about Brazil and Argentina? Argentina grows a lot of beef. Will there be also, they only, in the ruling that you've read to me, they're only talking about our relationship with Mexico and our relationship with Canada. Now, that's basically, those are the three the United States, Mexico, and Canada are the three basic industries or three basic countries for the North American Union. Mm-hmm. And if they're not saying, well, it would be bad for Brazil or it would be bad for Argentina, well, I'd say, okay, now this has got a global situation. But when they only mention Canada and Mexico, to me, it looks like this is a ruling that is conducive to, a, to the North American Union. It is conducive to creating a single nation out of Mexico, Canada, and the United States. Um, it's a it's a ruling that is conducive to destroying the United States of America and supplanting it with a North American Union. And for me, this is treason, and I, I you know this is for me this is just craziness. <clears throat> Where does the government get off? by entering into some treaty where some jackasses at the World Trade Organization can tell Americans what they can do and what they can't do with the labels on the food that they grow in their own country. And the answer is, this World Trade Organization is a precursor for the New World Order. Absolutely. Wait till the huh? TPP gets this going. Is, yeah, this, is not just, this isn't just a little deal on no, it isn't. labeling your cattle. That's not what this is about. This is about building a North American Union where the time is coming where you won't be able to tell huh, you won't be able to tell if the cattle are coming from Mexico or if the wetbacks are coming from Mexico, the illegal aliens. Because those labels, all the labels will be removed. We're just gonna have to assume that anybody who's here is belongs here. You know, a lot of people are in favor of free immigration, unlimited immigration. I think the people of the world should be able to go wherever they want. The world should just be free and there should be no national boundaries. And that's stupid. It's lunacy. It is the sort of thing that means your nation will be destroyed. Right now, transportation is relatively cheap. There was a time when if you were born in a particular country, odds are you might never even get out of the county you were born in, let alone get out of the country you were born in. It was not easy to move to different locations. And if your country, your county, whatever, was oppressive, you had two choices. You accept it or you stand up and fight, but there was no place to run to. Nowadays, you can run. You don't have to stand and fight. And there's a problem with that because people are coming to the, coming to the United States from third world nations who have a different system of values. And they think that all they have to do is just show up in the land of the free and the home of the brave and they'll get rich. 
And it's not that way. Your whatever wealth we ever had in this country was a function of our values. Our, we had a system of values that were certainly not shared by most of the world, that in some regards were uniquely American. This laid the foundation for what people call American exceptionalism. We had a system of values that helped us become the wealthiest, most powerful country on earth. When we bring people in without regard to their culture, and we teach our children that we must respect everyone's culture, we are lying to our children. We are conditioning them to say there's no difference between a culture that can, at high-tech is a wooden wheel and a culture where high-tech involves integrated circuits, for example. Well, I have it's no... Not true the two don't mix you come up here with a culture where you're only familiar with making wooden wheels hey i'm a high-tech man i can make a wooden wheel no and people don't get this they don't understand that the reason you come to this country is because this country at least once i won't say it's still true but we at least once had a system of values that was conducive to power prosperity we don't right now and bring all everybody in from every country now here's the problem with these easy transportation, inexpensive transportation, it means that poor people will flock like locusts to any country on the face of the earth, any region that appears to be making money. They'll say, that's for me. I'm going there. That's where all the money is. And all they're going to do, they don't have the system of values where they're capable of producing prosperity on, the, on their own. What they have is the capacity to consume, but they don't have a capacity to produce. Uh, you bring enough of them in here, we're going to completely lose our capacity to produce. We will lose our system of values. And when we do, we will lose any claim or hope of future prosperity unless and until we re recognize those values and regain them. I'm not so sure we lost our ability to produce by bringing in, you know, open boards. Certainly that was a part of it, but it was also the jobs leaving. I can and do respect other cultures, Al. That doesn't mean that I agree that uh, in, in open borders and allow, but I do know one thing. People do come to this country. They do. They are able to work. They can work, and they do make a live, better living than from where they came from. And you know that. And yet, you know, there, there's something we allow that to happen over the at our at the United States' expense the, the people who live here and people who live here i mean there are they they you know hey when you look at uh, you know 50% of the the population gets a check from washington there there's something wrong with it, it is so out of balance and i don't know if you get where i what i'm talking about I but I agree part. with you 100%. We have seen the decline of, uh, of here in the States. We've seen so much. We've lost so much due to allowing it to happen. We haven't recognized what's valuable about ourselves and our culture. We have been seduced into believing that all cultures are equal. I don't have a disrespect for other cultures. They're cute. I mean, they're interesting and the rest of that. But here's the thing. Your life expectancy in, some of the, in the cultures of some of the 
people that want to emigrate into this country, your life expectancy might be 45 years. In the, in the system of values that this country has formerly embraced, it might be 75 years. Do you want to die at 45? Do you want to die at 75? When you can't just you can't just say, oh, isn't that cute? What an attractive color, culture! Look at how how, well, how colorful you... their costumes are, and what an interesting dance the natives have. I don't care about your dance. I care about my life expectancy, and I am not about to recognize some system of values from some cultures as equal to what we at least formerly had in this country. Oh, absolutely not. That system not. of values just... keeps you alive. And if you don't want to, if you don't want to say, "Oh, they're all equal," huh? then you're going to have an average lifespan at best. Well, I don't think my comment was meant to say we are all equal. No, no, I get that. I'm not. I'm not. You know, I'm that's you know, and and, and, and I'm it's just saying more. That you have to recognize that cultures are not. Equal. I get that, and I, I get that cultures are. But. Cultures are different. It's tribal. The world is all tribal. I get all that. Mm-hmm. And when you try to mix the all of it together, it doesn't work. And here we are at the States. We've had many people that caught, that have come from other countries, but they uh, had wanted that's true. They they had wanted to be American. I they agree. They wanted, wanted finish. They wanted to embrace the values. They wanted to be Americans. And today... They come here to make a buck. I understand. And my point is that when the United States has been consumed like a wheat field that's been invaded by locusts, the locusts are just going to jump up and fly to Canada or over to Europe or maybe to China. Wherever the world is prosperous, the poor who are short on values that are worth a damn other than feeding their faces. They will flock there. It's called survival, Al. I get that, and it's, it's all just not survival. It's not just about their survival. It's also about my survival. And if I'm the farmer growing that wheat field, I don't want. I don't care if those locusts are hungry. Screw the locusts. I'm saying I want to keep that wheat for myself. The world is a difficult place, and we it can't is. sing Kumbaya and just say, come on down, you locusts, just invade my field and help yourselves. And then you fly off to the next guy's field, and I'll live here in poverty. We are giving up valuable parts of our country. Exactly. We are losing our system values, and we're going to pay a price for it unless we make a serious effort to regain those values and enforce our borders where we can't be flooded by people who don't even understand what those values are. I understand, and I agree with you. Shall we take uh, Jerry's call? I think we should. All right, Jerry, what you got for us? Hey, Al. Hey, Melody. How are you today? It's good. How are you? Oh, doing pretty good. Uh, I talked to Melody a couple weeks ago about exchanging some gold and silver, but also when I was talking to Melody, I had a uh, statement there about some information that I'd had, and I wanted to wait you know, tilt was on topic, and today's my day. I agree with everything you guys are saying, but as far as the North American Union, uh, I, I can only say what I see in my area or here. I mean, I'm not a worldly person, but I've got some information, and I think the North American Union has been slipped in, and it is activated right now, and I, I'd like mm-hmm. to tell you why. Uh, well, I can't sleep. I listen to this radio station, and it's a big one. It's on the AM dial, and it's all about trucking. I was involved in it for a long time, 
myself, but Al and Melody, there was a trucking company on there promoting, trying to get people, you know, to sign up to drive with them. And this is no joke. This is what they said in that ad. We have loads waiting for you in Canada, Mexico, and the United States, free to travel, no hassles. <clears throat> I think it's here. Yeah. Well, I know it's 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 well, like it's cooking it. frogs. They're working it up on. They're they're bringing it in an inch at a time or a foot at a time. It's not entirely here, but by the time the American people realize it's here, it will be so much a part of our infrastructure that it'll be. It'll be extraordinarily difficult to get rid of it, and maybe impossible. And that's what they're trying to do. Well, and I can go as yeah, I can go as far as name the trucking company. I really don't want to on the air, but I will because mm-hmm. this is exactly what I heard, and it just blew me away. Travel freely within Canada. Mexico and the United States, we've got loads waiting, no hassles at the borders, at the checkpoints. That tells me that uh, a lot of this, Al, is already implemented. And now you, mm-hmm. you guys are talking about the beef, uh, the, the WTO, you know, all this labeling stuff. It's just, and, and I agree with both of you guys, I really do, this is just a Further, in my opinion, this is just another race to the bottom for America. Yep. It's another act of treason by our own government to put us in this position. That's what we're talking about. This isn't a misunderstanding. There are people in positions of power that are essentially saying, to heck with all of you, to heck with the United States of America. They have brilliant ideas. They don't want to be stopped by the Constitution or public notice or letting, any pe- letting people get involved or pay, you know, contest this issue. They just want to do it. They're going to do it, and they're going to get it done, and to heck with everybody who lives here. It's That's treason, right. but, you know. And, and just, wait until this, just wait until this TPP gets approved. You yes. know, until yes, it gets fast tracked right. and he's in there making all these agreements and so forth. That's that's the last nail. That's and yes, it will it be is. completed. Jerry, if you've got well, more you know, to say what Jerry, if you've got more to say, why don't you hold on for a couple of minutes? We're gonna take some more commercials and we will be right back on American Survival. Please stay tuned. Financial survival. condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. 
Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the three W's.thepowerherbs.com. Prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, and Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Hi, folks. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, and we were talking to Jerry from Indiana. I'm not sure if Jerry's still on the line or not. Jerry, are you there? Yeah, I'm still here, Al. I've got one more comment I'd like to make, and then I'll make it quick and brief. Uh, but my first comment is that I really appreciate your show, Melody, and always have. Thank you. Uh, it's something that I listen to on a daily basis, so just wanted to throw that out there. But we had... What we had here in Indiana, Al, in Tipton County, where I'm at, we had a town hall meeting, and we were in the in the fight of our lives to get, you know, to turn away wind, wind energy in this county, and we all came together and we finally got an, uh, an ordinance changed. But anyway, we had a representative here, and my representative, Susan Brooks, and there was going to be, she was going to make a you know, some statements, and we could follow up with some questions. Well, I got my question, you know, I put my hand on me. But she made this outrageous statement that just, oh, it just settled in my crawl. She said, a pathway to citizenship. We need to let these people in that are already here. Our country was built on immigrants. They built on legal immigrants. Yeah, you know, you know, I'm just steaming by now. But finally, they picked me. I I was one of the chosen few to get up and speak. And I, you know, Susan, you know, I I heard what you said, and I I, I take, you know, question to it. You know, this country may have been built by some immigrants. I'm sure, no doubt. But it was not built by illegal aliens, and that's what you're promoting at this meeting. And people are sick and tired of it. NAFTA, GATT, and now this, you know, this new trade deal coming through. I didn't go there to get applause. 
the people started clapping for me. And I'm, yep. I mean, I'm not yep. a speaker. <clears throat> I, I'm, well, I'm just a common person. But. You would be surprised. I can remember first time I spoke in public. <laughs> I was at a father's for equal rights meeting. And they had two lawyers there. <laughs> and I stood up during the course of the during the course. I, I was so angry at the leak system and whatever that I stood up. I started talking to the lawyers, and one thing led to another. And before you know it, I was yelling at those people. All right, my guts were rolling, and I I blathered away for probably fifteen minutes. And the attorneys had nothing they could do to get to, to contradict what I was saying. And I finally started to lose my energy, and I finally started to wear out. And I thought, my God, I've just made a complete ass out of myself. And then somebody else stood up in the audience, and he said, you know, that guy's right. And then other people stood up in the audience and said, yeah, yeah, that guy's right. That guy's right. <laughs> well, the point <laughs> is you've got to be that guy who will stand up and speak out. And you might be surprised and even astonished. Before I got the whole audience, they were just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw one of the attorneys. I met him at a Christmas party a year or two later. <laughs> and I saw this guy, and I said, yeah, I met you once before. I was at the Father's Prequel Rights meeting back. And he says, oh, my God, some guy almost got me lynched. I said, yeah, that was me. He didn't recognize me. You understand? When he, when we, I said, that was me. And he looked at me, and then he just walked away and got out of there. But he, was, he, he wasn't kidding. Some guy almost got him lynched. You can't be afraid to speak out. You've got to stand up and speak when the opportunity presents itself. And it's unfortunate, but most people are terrified by the idea of speaking in public. So you did a good yeah. job, and you saw evidence of what I'm talking about. I'm sure yeah. you had some thought. You stood up, spoke out, and you started to wonder, oh, my gosh, I'm making an idiot out of myself. And then all of a sudden the audience says, yeah, this guy's right. That's yeah, not just well, good for you. That's good for the audience to make themselves understand that they are not alone. Most of the people sit there and they think, oh, I've got this idea that we shouldn't speak. I don't want to see the illegal aliens come in. I don't want the New World Order, but I, I don't want to speak because people think I'm stupid. No, you got to right. speak. Speak, speak, and then all of a sudden you just might find out that people agree with you, and that's good for you, and it's good for your neighbors to understand they are not alone. Their ideas are not crazy. Crazy. They're the kind of ideas right. that everybody's jumping on. Well, thanks, Al. Thanks, Melody. All right, appreciate nice. it. Thank you. Your call. What do you think, Melody? Shall we all stand up and speak in public? We should, on a particular day, we should all hang out the window and say, I'm mad as heck, and I'm not going to take it anymore. But, uh, mad as hell. Melody, mad Hulk. as hell. Yes. <laughs> not mad as heck. But we are coming. I mean, we've been conditioned for such a long time, and you can look back now in history, and you can see all the changes, all the laws, all the legislation, how things have been progressed, everything, and people have gotten fat, happy, and lazy, and we allowed the American people, I believe, has to take so has to take a big part of the blame because they just didn't look to see what was ready to hit them in the head, and uh, uh, it's only inches away. But they will, they will get hit by that yeah, two by four. I understand that, and 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 protecting recover. and protecting your assets is one of the most important things that you can do. It's all part of it. 
It's all part of their system, of their agenda, to leave you penniless. The pension plans, the 401ks. Leave you dependent. Depend, but all of these plans, everything that it helped a certain group of people, and that was their way of getting everybody hooked. And now people are hooked, and people project this some kind of great future that they have. And uh, we have a Wayne uh, caller, Wayne from. Um, let's see, where's Wayne from? Texas. Texas. Hello, Wayne. Texas Welcome to the program. State down the southwest. Is that where that's a lot at? of people have heard of it. Yeah. Uh, Wayne from Texas. What up, Wayne? I'm down in Aladask territory. Uh-huh. What you got uh, for us? Hey, I wanted to thank you for bringing up the issue once again about the illegal aliens, and I just wanted to bring the attention to your listeners that in the Dallas area over the weekend there was another incident where a, a suspected drunk illegal alien was driving down the wrong way of a five-lane freeway in Dallas here, uh, veered over and ended up killing a young mother who had two kids in her car. And it was just such an infuriating story to read that once again we have this mayhem being committed right in our, under our noses. And in the Dallas area, this is the third incident I can recall within the last few weeks uh, where the same thing has happened. And the biggest question I have anymore is uh, where is the liability or who's culpable here? Because you have government workers at all levels openly breaking federal law by aiding and abetting illegal aliens. So I'm just trying to figure out how in the world has this continued to happen and no one is making any kind of, uh, uh, you know, bringing anybody to charges or forcing anybody to resign. Well, it happens because we have a government that is, in fact, engaged in systemic treason against the people of the United States of America. This isn't an accident. We sit down here like a bunch of dummies and say, golly, how could that happen? This is so surprising. No, it's not. The government is your enemy. The government of the United States is working to destroy the United States of America. They are working to supplant it and replace it with a North American Union and then a new world order. They have no constitutional right, no constitutional power, no constitutional authority to change this country and cause it to be wedded to Mexico and Canada without the people being involved. If you want to pass an amendment to the Constitution, fine. But so long as there's no such amendment, they're operating illegally. They're operating treasonously. They aren't going to, do, they aren't going to enforce the laws against themselves. You're asking who's going to hold them responsible? The answer is we the people if we get off our butts and we face objectively the kinds of problems that we have in this country and okay fine we might be able to get something done but we're going to have to lean on them to the point where they understand that there will be trials for treason get in our way with some crap about you government officials and politicians you think we have to allow illegal aliens to come into this country what we have is a government who is engaged in criminal acts against the people of the United States of America and they're just saying it's okay we're the government we can engage in criminal acts and I'm saying we're the people and we can enforce the laws against treason if we care to and if we don't then this country is going right down the pipe and when it does the people that are sitting around here watching dancing with the stars are going to be among the most vocal in screaming what happened what happened where's my free lunch and what happened is that as a people we have failed to read we've failed to 
understand, we failed to educate ourselves, and we have failed to stand up and speak out in public. All right? We've had some stupid idea that we can just go along with the program, and we'll all sing Kumbaya, and everything's going to work out. And I'm going to tell you, it's not. And you can quote me on that, and I don't, you know, I mean, it's, it's not news. I'm certainly not the first one to say so, and I won't be the last, but the public doesn't want to believe it. They don't want to take responsibility for these ideas, because if they do, they're going to have to actually... If you embrace some of these ideas, it means you're going to have to stand up. It means you're going to have to be prepared to fight. And that doesn't mean shoot at people, but it does mean stand up and speak out in public. It does mean that you have to get politically active. You may even have to run for public office. You, and worst of all, you might even have to read some books and learn what the fundamental values of this country were and what they should be. And understand the Constitution. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to learn something. Anything but learning. Don't make me learn anything. Unfortunately, that's the way most Americans are. They got this dumb sure idea. All that. they need is a rifle or something, and they're good to go. You know, it's just crazy. Oh, sure. Well, I should read a real good uh, ongoing um a publication called The Anti-Shyster and learned a lot of good ideas out of that one. I but, heard uh, about that. I, I, I heard about that publication back in the day. Uh, had a good reputation. <laughs> sure did. Sure did. Learned, yeah. learned a lot. But do you see any weakness in, in this alleged uh, immunity these government types have from what you, you've looked at? Like, well, I could look be at a possible treason. remedy? I look at treason. It's in Article 3 of the Constitution of the United States. And it's, it pretty much makes it clear that if you do harm, if you work, if you give aid and comfort to the enemies of the United States of America and the several states of the United States of America, it's treason. Bring them in, try them. If they're found guilty, hang them. Very simple. All right? And they should be tried in front of a jury of their peers. And bring them in if they're found guilty, light them up. No, no mess around. It's, you can start the trial in 30 days. Guys arrested for treason today, trial in 30 days. Bring any lawyers you want, but make them understand that if you stand up and defend somebody who is charged with treason and he is convicted, then your law firm is also going to be charged with giving aid and comfort to an enemy of the people of the United States of America. And when I say the law firm, I'm not just talking about the lawyer who's standing up and speaking for you. I'm talking about every partner, every associate, every paralegal, every clerk, right on down to the receptionist. You bring a big law firm in to defend yourself, guess what? That entire law firm is liable for treason, charges of treason, giving aid and comfort to the enemies of the United people of the United States of America. Now what? You're going to have to do all your talking as a defendant all by yourself. And let's see if you can persuade the jury that your support for the New World Order and the North American Union and the World Trade Organization, let's see if you can make the pitch that this isn't treason, that it's actually for the benefit of the people of the United States of America, and it's not. And if you can't make that treason, if you can't make that argument in front of the jury, then guess what? You're going bye-bye. All right? Finish the trial. There's no 10 years of appeals. Treason. Found guilty by a jury of your peers. If they do find you guilty, you got 24 hours at most, maybe less. Yeah. All right. Say goodbye. I think that would get some people some relief. 
And as nutty as that idea sounds, I guarantee that if the American people were to implement that on a significant basis, and I don't mean going after everybody in the government, I mean you get a dozen or 20 of them. I guarantee everybody in the government said, oh, my God, we're going to you won't believe this. We won't be able to commit treason anymore. <laughs> you know? Very good. Okay, thanks, Al. All right, Wayne, thanks very much for your call. <laughs> thanks for remembering the anti-shyster, which, in fact, was a news magazine that I published for 12 years, supported myself for 12 years publishing the Anti-Shyster, and uh, I was proud of that. It was a good magazine. It really was. There was time, there was one time while I was publishing the magazine, you know, a lot of people would call in and they liked it. It was, it was maybe not, it certainly wasn't for everybody, but it was for a lot of people. And there was a niche. And people say, gosh, I wonder what was going to be in the next issue. And it was up to me, of course, as editor and publisher. I found myself one day, I said, gee, I wonder what's going to be in the next issue of the Anti-Shyster. I was looking forward to the magazine, then all of a sudden I thought, oh, wait, it's up to me to decide what's in there. I like that magazine. I like publishing it. I enjoyed it. Uh, it's, it's history now, but uh, it was a good time. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, with the good Lord bless you, me, Melody, and Frank, the producer, and also waiting from Texas. And who do we have? Jerry from Indiana? Well, bless us all. One and all, just like Tiny Tim says. Bye-bye, folks. Catch you tomorrow. I work all night. I work all day to pay the bills I have to pay. Ain't it sad? Still, there never seems to be a single penny left for me. Pandemics will be a part of our future. The question is, how do we protect ourselves? Are you willing to put your trust in untested vaccine, hoping it kills mutating viruses? Remember, in 1976, health officials tried to inoculate Americans with swine flu, and there was a 300% death rate for those inoculated, and millions were paid out in damages. God gave you a sophisticated immune system, and in times of need, you can make it 10 times stronger. So there's no need to panic. Just get prepared. Call Apothecary Herbs to order your upgraded pandemic kit. You will have eight professional strength formulas offering broad-spectrum immune-boosting protection. Take a stand. Have a plan. Have peace and request your pandemic kit today. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663, or online, thepowerherbs.com. That's 866-229-3663, or thepowerherbs.com. thought thyme herb provided strength. Indeed, the chemical compounds of thyme contain antioxidants, an effective germicide that kills whooping cough bacteria and makes breathing easier. Just imagine what you can do with thyme herb when it comes to respiratory ailments like croup, pneumonia, asthma, and sinusitis. The extra benefit of thyme herb is that it soothes nerves and stops spasmodic coughing, so you can get some rest. Who says you don't have time to take care of yourself? 
Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free for time, tincture, and tea to soothe your cough and get some rest. 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International 704-875-8010 or online at thepowerherbs.com. Financial obligations or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. President Herbalist Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you on Herb Talk. Thanks for joining us here on American Voice Radio. Magical engineer Frank and I are ready to roll. We are going to be talking about, for the first part of the show, we're going to be talking about the age of machines and how that's going to affect our health care. And you think technology is cool. Well, it is. It can be. But what's it going to do in healthcare? We're going to find out. Uh, also, if we get time, we're going to be talking about... Um, Uh, some enemies of your health, and, of course, um, we may even get to some um, barbecue topics because, you know, summer's here, you dusted off all the lawn furniture, you cranking up the barbecue. Well, we're going to talk about that if we have time. And uh, we have a quack report, but before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform. I'm lifting all of America up in prayer, and I'm, I'm praying for righteous leadership globally. I'm just, you know, so sick of all the, you know, police state stuff. Let's just get some common sense here. And uh, so I'm praying for righteous leadership, men of, you know, wisdom and, and knowledge and, uh, you know, godly things. And I was, uh, I was spending some time in Psalms. And in uh, chapter 31, uh, David, he just had a way with words. So let me encourage you all. It says, oh, the love of the Lord, all you saints. For the Lord preserveth the faithful, and plentifully rewardeth the proud doer. Mm-hmm. Those that are naughty, they won't get their reward. And be of good court, courage. 
for he shall strengthen your heart, all ye that hope in the Lord. So don't lose that hope. Seek the Lord's face, mind the time, because the time grows short. He knows who you are if you're talking to him. Yeah, that's our relationship we're supposed to nurture, right? Spend some time with the Lord and find out what he wants. Find out the things he likes and doesn't like. And then live by that. Yep. Because, you know, the faithful will be preserved. And I want you to be one of them. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. All right, thank you, Frank. Oh, moving around here. Let's see, what do we got? Um, got to go to the UK. Apparently, the stroke is a big problem over there, like it is here. Uh, the number one number one uh, thing for people over their 40 and 50th birthdays, apparently, is the topic of stroke because those conditions are soaring, according to the Stroke Association over there in the UK. They said there's this trend, very sad trend, they said. The nation's health is being greatly affected. According to their data, um, the number of men of over 40, between 40 and 54 actually, in England were hospitalized for having a stroke, and that number grew by 46%. And the figure for women in the same age group grew by 30%. Whoa. So there's a real concern that, Uh, Weight gain, obesity, of course, and stroke could uh, replace smoking as a major killer for adults over there. So the research is showing that being obese increases the chances of having a stroke related to uh, a blood clot by about 64%. So they're saying, you know, people, people, please, you know, get a healthier lifestyle, get some regular exercise, and, uh, you know, get that blood pressure down. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, you know what to do with regular exercise, and you know what to do with, you know, healthy, healthier eating. And if you need help with other things to get that blood pressure in check, you know, there are some medicinal herbs that can help you do that to strengthen the cardio, not weaken it. So choose wisely. All right, last but not least in the quack report, um, oh, goodness, going to Michigan, Nicole Rolfe. She's a student at uh, the school called Baker College it was in Flint, Michigan. She's suing because she was wrongfully dismissed from their nursing program. After she had some concerns, she raised some concerns about the instruction which she to the nursing students that she felt was unethical and illegal in the curriculum. And when she 